they say the darkest of coal storms comes before the brightest gems of a dawn. This is Content Minded, episode 49, another Solo Variety Mega Show. Thank you all. I'm getting close to episode 50. I would have been there by now, but well, I've been having to take breaks, uh, writing my book and doing other varieties of grass touching things. But I, I want to thank everybody. There are certain things that I've been falling behind on when it comes to my patrons that I will rectify. Even if uh, you've unsubscribed from the $20 tier or the $50 tier, I definitely want to send you woodblock prints and artwork. It just it takes time to print them. Uh, well, yeah, from the Vefio and OGF series. And this year, hopefully, I mean, I had an idea to do a zine, but this book really, uh, you know, took time out of it. But I, I think I may do another Wojak woodcut for it. But anyways, yeah, I probably will. Probably will. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that. They, they don't take that much to make. I've, I've made some of them before. But uh, yeah, anyways... Uh, there's a lot of things have been happening lately, and I wanted to uh, talk many things, and I'm judging what I should talk in public or what should I paywall. I think some more contentious political things I probably will put in the paywall version of this episode. By the way, go to patreon.com or substack, yeah, patreon.com slash giant productions and substack at Geo's Content Corner where you will get the full content-minded and generative views episodes, including extra content. And very soon, I think I will release um, draft chapters of my book. But anyways, I just wanted to kick back and uh, relax and, you know, hopefully talk about some, some good things. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been through a lot this month. A lot, of, a lot of good, though. A lot of good. A lot of good, I would say. Very good. Very positive. But, you know, it's, you know, I think people don't realize the gravity of certain things. So, I mean, I've done this on the show before, but I've, uh, you know, I, I want to discuss various uh, romance films. One of them, I, I think, is a lost gem. You know, I think Tubi, uh, those of you who have a fire stick, yes, I know uh, Amazon is evil. But if you have a, if you have a fire stick and you have Tubi, I mean, really better... It, 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 people tell me it's what old-school Netflix is. I mean, you can find so many, like, low-budget, low-quality gems. Along with Plex and the Fire Stick. But, uh... I want to discuss romance films. Uh, one of them is from the... Again, another one from the early internet age. I think I might discuss, uh... I think I might discuss two of them. But one of them's called The Center of the Universe. Or is it The Center of the Universe? Yeah. Yeah, um... It's about a, a an OG programmer, Spurgoid, that makes it big, played by a, one of Suskard's sons. And, uh, you know, he... he uh, she's not exactly a lady of the night, but she's, you know, an, uh, an erotic dancer. Let's put it that way. And he goes to Vegas, and they're in hotels, and uh, it's, very, it's very revealing, I feel, of the way in which a lot of, uh, you know, romance and a lot of... Um, Sort of like crushing alienation and loneliness of the digital age. But I'll, I'll get to that. The second one is a film that I wanted to cover for a very long time, which I think I might have to pay a wall. You know what? I'll do one film review public. I'll do the Center of the Universe one. And then um, 
sorry, center of the world, not center of the universe, center of the world. Um, there's another great one that's five hours long that my good friend Kino Corn recommended called um, At the End of the World, which is like a travel post, like semi post apocalyptic film on the brink of post apocalypticism. Yeah, sorry, Peter Sasgard and Molly Parker. Uh, Molly Parker is like, you know, very, like, has that, like, you know, early 2000s, like, mid-girl, independent woman kind of look that I, I feel was quite quite captivating in this film. But uh, the second one I wanted to cover is the one is one I wanted to cover for a very long time because of its poetry, because of its sort of sense of, uh, of desperation, of religious ecstasy, of various other, uh, let's say, mature themes in a family dynamic it's called to the left of the father or as it's known in portuguese lavona arquesa lavona arquesa sorry um i i've been meaning to watch this film for a while and both films by the way come come out in 2001 so that's significant but to the left of the father is a well-known film in brazil and uh, both films come out in 2001 which i think is quite interesting and it features Simone Spalladora, and it was directed by, um, you know, well-known uh, Brazilian director Luis Fernando Caravallo. And, uh, yeah, and I think, uh, I see, for years I wanted to, like, try to find a translation to the point where I was probably going to risk, like, embarrassment by watching this type of film with my mother so she could translate, but, like, she hates... I don't know. I mean, she she's pretty. Uh, like when when she's watching a film, it's funny because uh, she she hates uh, subtitles. But to get like, I would have to like you know we have to like watch a little bit at a time because it's almost a three hour film, and she would have to like say word for word because people you know as as most well a lot of people know, um, my mother was born and raised in Brazil, and you know uh, my my family on my mother's side they were the first wave of Italian expats to, uh, to, to Brazil. And, uh, yeah, so her first native language, her first tongue was Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese. Uh, yeah, you know, she grew up in, uh, in a suburb of Sao Paulo and I still have a lot of family there. And so, yes, my mother, listen, my father's family, especially his mother's side of the family, my father's family's been in Canada since I believe well into the 1900s. And, um, and his, and my father's father's side has been in Canada since at least before World War One. So, I mean, I don't know, that doesn't make me, you know, heritage stock Canadian, but, you know, still, it makes me pretty Canadian. And, of course, my mother is a literal Ellis Islander. Like, she literally saw the Statue of Liberty and, uh, she, you know, she passed through Ellis Island when she, <laughs> when she came to North America. Then, you know, I, I believe my great uncle was in was in Canada and uh my great grandparents were in Canada and that's why they came here but it was very different back then they literally had to live with uh you know my two aunts my mother and my grandparents had to live with my great grandparents for like six months before they could afford a home and of course my grandfather um he had to sort of descale his job because he was a Finnish carpenter he was a very good Finnish carpenter but you know he he was of the generation where he struggled with the language as opposed to my grandmother. And, 
you know, he, he took, you know, he took a union job. He, you know, he, he went to, he, he did construction, but you know, he could have, he could have done more, but like, th this is the generation where, you know, you struggle with the language and my, my mother went through, through the whole ordeal of like, you know, typical immigrant story back in the day. There is no subsidized housing. There is no welfare for them. Okay. It wasn't like Trudeau bringing these people in nowadays. Uh, they had to really struggle. My mother had to basically teach my grandparents English. And uh, she had to go to a, let's put it this way, a technical school, high school, because of the language barrier. But, you know, um, yeah, being, that that must have been mortifying, right? Like, I sympathize with my mother being like the weird immigrant girl. But, you know, that is what it is. So, yeah, but I mean, my, my father's side has, you know, practically been here for a long time. Since the first wave of, like, non-Anglosphere... I mean, I don't know if I should include the Irish in the Anglosphere, because the Irish were here, I believe, this almost the same time the British were in Canada. But, of course, you know, the first wave of non-French, non-Anglosphere immigrants, uh, my my father's family was here for quite a long time in Canada. But I, I was thinking about that recently, about, you know, I guess this is a foray into our first topic. I guess romance has been on my mind lately, but whatever, um... Oh, it's a good title for this episode of Love and Politics. But yeah, the whole thing about like the the the, the coal coming before the gemmest of dawns, the, the the brightest gems of dawn, as my good friend uh, Eddie Bernays on Twitter corrected me because I said gemmest of bright dawns. But he's like, that doesn't make sense, Geo. So I credit Eddie Bernays on Twitter. Great meme account, great meme poster. Follows all of us. Small account, but you know, you got to give credit. You have, to, you have to really protect the small accounts. I mean, it's your job as a big account to foster the small Anon accounts or even non-Anon accounts, but the small Anon accounts, they do occupy a sacred space. And this is why I will never counter-signal anonymity, and th which has come up recently. I think the public uh, politics side, uh, I was going to say a good title of this episode, could be Between Love and Politics. Um, and I think like uh, people want to talk People want me to talk about the Hanania thing, okay? But I, I'll talk about that. But before we get to that, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, it, it is a weird experience when you are descendant of Ellis Islanders. And there's been this, like, discourse about the Confederacy and Reconstruction. Someone posted this very great Mystery Grove tweet, a RAP to the Mystery Grove account, go out and find and buy all the Mystery Grove titles. I have Storm of Steel. Uh, I, I have yet to buy, um, I want to buy the, the Wrangle biography. I heard that's a really great read. Um, always with honor. I always think the title is ever with honor. I think that would be a good title though. Ever with honor by Peter Nevitt. Sorry, by Peter Wrangle. Um, but Mr. Griffin, a great tweet. He said, you know, they're, they're academics that always like leftoid academics always sway between reconstruction should have been longer because it was a great multi-culti feel-good liberal experiment and reconstruction should have been longer because it had the chance to resemble the Khmer Rouge so like the level of normie sadism that liberal Ellis Islanders have towards both heritage stock Canadians sorry heritage stock Americans but also heritage stock Canadians either French or um or Anglophone but like the thing about like it's a very easy out to say like you're the losers and all this because I, I had a tweet that I deleted. It was in reply to my friend 
Um, it was a reply to, I believe it was, um, it may have been Gary, please be patient. Y yes, I think it was Gary. I said, like, you know, the thing is that if you actually look at the history, a lot of Union soldiers basically viewed the Confederacy as a tra they, they, they viewed their Confederate, um, their, their Confederate soldier counterparts as essentially in the view of, like, this tragic brothers' war that happened between Americans. And, and during Reconstruction, there was a great pains to integrate both veteran groups. And they would have, like, cookouts and and meetings and like those union hall meetings together. And there's these very beautiful pictures of union and Confederate soldiers shaking hands. And they're both grizzled and old, <laughs> you know, um, there's also been similar ones between Wehrmark soldiers and American soldiers and British and Canadian soldiers that would meet each other. And they would discuss And some of them actually like, you know, traded gunfire against each other. They were in the same areas and it's, one of those things where I guess in the mind of a soul of a veteran, you sort of view it as like, you know, this tragic thing that we had to go through and you have nothing but respect for the, the, the enemy that was worthy. You know, I, I said this, I, I uh, had this Twitter thread once where I relayed, um, I, I commented upon the Star Trek episode where Kirk fights the Romulan commander and it almost brings a tear to my eye, that episode, because Kirk was really down on himself and his ability to lead. He was, I believe the episodes previously, he was taking L after L, and Spock tried to tell, like, reassure him that he was a good commander, he was a good captain. And so he faced down the Romulan captain, he ultimately won, and Kirk begged him, he begged him, he pleaded with him to say, no, please, come to my ship, I will teleport you all, and you don't have to do this. But then the Romulan commander looks into Kirk's eyes through the, the screen, the telescreen, and says, me and you were both creatures of duty, and maybe in another life we would have called each other friends. I'm getting goosebumps. And then he said one final duty, and he blows up the ship in defeat. And of course that film was related to, when I believe it wasn't Roddenberry, it was someone else that was writing it. But of course Roddenberry had a way of just claiming all episodes for himself. <laughs> funny how that works right i believe it was someone else who wrote the script they compared it to or rather the source material was the 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 um the the amazing incredible you uh you know world war ii naval drama the enemy below where the german captain of a u-boat comes to befriend the american captain of a destroyer and he ultimately saves the u-boat captain and they sort of have a chuckle on the hall in the end. They're like, he's like, would you have saved me? He goes, probably not. Even though they, he would have, he would have, you know. The point being is that these films could never be made nowadays. Th that could never exist. The Enemy Below and that episode of Star Well, maybe that episode of Star Trek. But the en Enemy Below and certainly any film that is about, let's say, a Union commander taking pity or taking a, a respectful after a respectful engagement of battle, of arete, the Greek concept of excellence through combat and mutual competition that Nietzsche talked about. That was what The Enemy Below was about. Was about that was what that episode of Star Trek was about. You know, you could never have this film because the enemy must be demonized. And a lot of these like Ellis Islander liberals or descendant from Ellis Islanders, 
they have this like weird normie sadism where they have to justify their own Americanness by hating the South and by having this total like literal Hutu or Khmer Rouge level of G word idol hatred of Southerners. And it's like this weird LARP that they have, especially academics and in people like Ken Burns, these like pop historians of the civil war and of America, they've done a massive disservice during the Trump years where Ken Burns did this like terrible normie lib, like sadist retconning of the, of all of his previous works that were actually quite good of the civil war where he's like, you know, he has to like bury interviews he did with like Confederate veterans. And it's just like this, you know, the, the Americans in general have this like weird, uh, sanitized version of like why the civil war was fought, which I probably shouldn't get into. And, you know, listen, I don't have any dog in the fight as a Canadian and a descendant of Ellis Islanders, but I just have immense sympathy for both the, the, you know, the heritage stock of Americans and the heritage stock of both Anglophone and Francophone Canadians, even though the Francophone ones, they can, <laughs> you know, Quebecois, they can be quite intense and kind of annoying people. But, you know, I mean, I, a lot of them are actually quite brilliant. A lot of them have, uh, you know, a genuine soul. And I, I deeply uh, regret what happened with uh, Catholicism in Quebec. And yeah, a lot of them can be pushy and annoying. But, you know, I mean, a lot of them have a genuine cultural expression. And a lot of them, like, just go and meet a, a Quebecois person. They, they're very unique people. Very interesting personalities, to say the least. I mean, yeah, a lot of them can be pushy and rude. And, you know, they'll thumb your nose down on you because you're from Ontario. But, <laughs> but still, I mean, they... The, in other words, these people are worthy of respect, right? Now, listen. My my uncle, actually, I mean, uncle by marriage, my uncle Mark, his family has been in Canada literally since the Loyalist days. I believe his his ancestors were the first wave of Loyalists even before 1812 to come to Canada. So he's as Canadian as you could get, right? He ends up marrying an Italian woman, my aunt, Uh but, you know, he, you know, we talk about this, right? We talk about his family and, of course, uh, you know, his 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 uh, father, who um, unfortunately passed away when he was very young, uh, was a World War II veteran who saw combat in uh, Monte Cassino, where the Canadians were. You know, it's funny. They called uh, the Canadians, they called them uh, post, what do they call them, pasta rats or something? The Canadians and the British were in Italy way before the Americans uh, came into World War II. And so a lot of the Canadian troops, they were, along with the British, were like grizzled veterans by the time the Americans came. And they, you know, helped clean up Italy from, uh, you know, well. But, you know, it's funny because we were talking about this and he absolutely detests like all of this politically correct nonsense. And like, he's like, yeah, you know, like I, I'm Canadian. I should, what did I got to do? I'm going to be ashamed of the fact that like I, my family's been here forever. You know, like I got to, I got to bow, I got to bend the knee. I got to grovel. Like, come on. You know, so I have an immense respect for heritage Canadians, as I always say. And uh, it's just it's really interesting how during Reconstruction, there was this emphasis of not demonizing Southern veterans and, and not demonizing Southern people. And it's like, you know, nowadays, all that's washed away with sort of president presentist politics and really an incredibly unhealthy attitude that people have towards these things. And I just, I, I, I just does, I can't understand it. I can't understand it because, uh, 
in Canada recently. Let me tie this to um, a recent thing that's happened in the Canadian National Gallery. Now, this is a topic that's close to my heart, very close to my heart as an artist, as someone who is trying to maybe a little bit to go back to the landscape. But, you know, as, as a Canadian artist, we live in the shadow of the Group of Seven, okay? So, yeah, we live in the shadow of the Group of Seven, and the Group of Seven is very, um, very, very close to my heart. And recently, there was, like, one of these, like, woke artists, whatever, like, these contemporary artists that had this, like, mural and this video package, and, like, her mural is all about trying to, ch or is it him or her? I think it's a her. This article in the National Post try to like challenge racism and white supremacy, blah, 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 blah. And in the video, they show a clip of a Lauren Harris painting. Now the National Gallery so far has said, oh no, we're not trying to acquaint the group of seven with white supremacy. We're not trying to do that, but we know what's coming. We know what's coming. Now Lauren Harris painted the spiritualized landscape of the Canadian wilderness and verged into modernist, um, certainly modernist symbolism and ways of painting and there's even like shades of geometric abstraction and of course my favorite is uh, tom thompson and awa jackson and you know i also have a, a story i i think i've told you people before but i i'll tell it again if i haven't or maybe i told this during the, the fall of the rules days um but before i get to that so it's typical, like, nonsense of, like, trying to cancel Group of Seven. But you see how insidious this is. That any expression that was unique to the European soul, like, that can't be expressed anymore. Like, what are you saying? That, like, you're saying people of color can't, uh, I mean, that's a politically correct term now. They can't make landscape paintings? I mean, there's a whole tradition of African landscape painters. You know, in Australia, they have Aboriginal uh, uh, landscape painters. I know this for a fact. Australia actually has an, an amazing impressionist landscape scene and plein air scene. You know, um, it comes up with Emily Carr. Like, I, I, I think I talked about this before on a solo episode. I talked about the, um, the documentary where they did about uh, one of the greatest indigenous artists in Canada that verged into artistic modernism in the 70s um what's his name he was subject to love of forgery too as well that was the whole hook of the documentary uh norval morso and i believe the documentary is free on uh on youtube or on the cbc website but morso um unfortunately like his even his own family members would like forge his work or i believe his nephew did and like would get him to sign the name and it was all like a scam and i believe some element of organized crime in canada was involved but yeah, I talked about how, like, the paradox of Emily Carr, I believe, when I talked about Mudasso. So Emily Carr, and by the way, I absolutely adore and love Emily Carr. He's, she's one of my favorite artists. Uh, Emily Carr is either a trailblazer of feminist art, like, and, and she lived a quite an extraordinary life in the rural parts of Vancouver. Now, she isn't, like, technically Group of Seven, but she's equated with them because she was around the same time and the same style and so forth. So she's either like for depicting indigenous art and masks and, and totems that she's either like either a terrible colonialist 
and cultural appropriation, or she's a trailblazer of feminist art. I mean, can you have both? Maybe. But it's like, I, I get so upset about this because it, it's literally trying to rob Canada of any, like, little sinew they have of, like, uh, of Canadians have of being, like, a unique people with a unique culture. And I explain this in my book, that it's essentially the ideology of the global airport that Canada is a trailblazer of. There's this great thread that my good friend uh, Trash Radio did. I mean, Stane Haynes, but you know, Trash Radio. Um, Stane Haynes did about, like, Canada and how, like, the housing market's built on the pile of sand and how immigration is, like, artificially sustaining the economy and how, basically, this is, like, the, the end result of the global, global airport ideology and Trudeau saying things like, first post-national country, that that's just a cope for... The, the various unsustainable economic schemes that the government is doing. But it all plays into each other. All of these things play into each other. And it's very tragic. And it's very, it's very sad. And Americans as well. I mean, Amer a lot of Americans have been psyoped into this like narrative of their own past. And Canadians, it's much easier. Because we're told that we're, you know, our uniqueness is basically that we have no uniqueness. That we're an open template that we're sort of like the smorgasbord of the world, and that's it. So, yeah, this is very tragic stuff, and they're trying, they're going to cancel the Group of Seven. I mean, I know this is like ephemeral culture war politics, but still, I just had to say it. I had to comment on it. It's very tragic. It's very terrible. Because it ignores the, the deep spiritual elements of the Group of Seven and of Emily Carr. And it ignores... What I think is the fertile ground from which you can explore a unique sense of like what Canadiana is like pre, I'm talking pre Pierre Trudeau experiment of Canada or to view Canada as the basically the template of the global airport, global airport world ideology. And uh, it's, yeah, so I, I, I take great offense to it because it's very personal to me. Um, there's a story that I, I, I think I've told before. So I guess let's get the air posting before we get to the politics. Uh, I guess it's part of the love equation of the, between love and politics of this episode. But I guess they're interrelated because, like I, like I've said before, I, I said this even on Orrin McIntyre's show, there's a deep erotic, uh, element. There's a deep libidinal element to all politics and all ideology, as we know. So um, I believe even Zizek talks about this in his book, uh, X and the Absolute, is a more recent one. Uh, people don't know this, but, but uh, yeah, there's so many things happening. Uh, you know, Glink had a great video about uh, e-cult. Uh, I might get him on show. I, I've been recording a number of great bangers. Uh, I recorded one with uh, Meta Prime, one with Marty Phillips. I'm going to do one with Micah Paul. But, uh, you know, Glink is on the list. A uh, number of other people. I'm getting distracted. Uh, I, I saw recently Canadian news, uh, this picture going around of Jordan Peterson. You know, as, as harsh as I've been on Peterson, especially with my article about anonymity, he looks genuinely happy. And I, I wish him the best. And he's got the typical, like, you know, Canadian retiree. They, they, they go to... Vancouver Island or something. Uh, people, very Canadian uh, type of uh, physiognomy. People don't realize that he looks serene and peaceful and happy for once in his life. 
And I think that decoupling from, you know, decoupling from all that has uh, happened to him, I I feel is for the best. But anyways, uh, this, this, uh, story I told before, I think, uh, I, I told a story of this uh, William Blair Bruce painting. Now, people don't know this, but William Blair Bruce was a bit before the group of seven, around the same time, but he was the first one to go to Europe. He studied under Monet, and he brought the gifts of European Impressionism to the vast wilderness of the Canadian landscape. And a lot of the group of seven learned from him because he was from the Hamilton area, and there was a number of them in, you know, in Tirana, like Lauren Harris. And I always identified with this painting he did called The Phantom Hunter. Now, when my, my father always told me this story, and I think this is what really inspired me to become an artist, now that I think about it, because he told me this when I was a little kid, that he went to the Hamilton Gallery with his mother. Now, his mother was very Canadianized because, of course, her family's been here for a long time, her you know... Uh, my grandmother, I never knew her. She died a few years before I was born. She was a head nurse. Uh, you know, they call it a numb in Australia and Britain, nursing unit manager. But she was a head nurse and she was educated and she came to my town, you know, as a, as a you know, family health nurse. Because you have to realize back in the day, family, public health nurses were very important back in the day, uh, especially for low-income people. And uh, she, when when my father was a little kid, he went to the Hamilton Gallery and he walked up the stairs and they had this, they had the painting, The Phantom Hunter by William Blair Bruce. And he remembers the way that they had the light and he looked at it, he looked at it for a long time and he never forgot it. And he said years later he would, he went back and of course it was, it was in a different location and it wasn't the same. But he said that he felt like a hunter or a trapper in, in the Arctic wilderness in Canada was dying and his soul was carrying on the journey. Even that's one interpretation. That's interpretation I always found poetic in a way, but really the, the painting that William Blair Bruce, it was inspired by a poet, by a poem about this old indigenous legend of a hunter that had died in the Arctic. And if you camped out in the wilderness, in the vast Arctic barrens of northern Canada, maybe one day you would be visited by this hunter. And so it depicts a trapper or hunter being startled by the phantom, carrying on his journey. And I remember, I remember seeing pictures of this when I was younger. And I think in some ways it inspired me to sort of look at the landscape in the wilderness of Canada that still exists and that needs to be preserved. And the sort of like massification of current Canada is chewing up the landscape. I mean, here in Ontario, some of the best, um, some of the most fertile and best fruit belt lands and, and grape vineyards are being chewed up right now because of this global airport project that we know now as current contemporary Canada. And it's a, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because I feel that only certain types of people can really appreciate 
the wilderness and the landscape. And, uh, you know, I wrote about this, uh, this uh, national film board. This was back in the WordPress days. I wrote about this uh, national film board film that was called Blair. And Blair was a bush pilot. And he would often go out and he would, uh, I, think, I think he's still alive. He would go out with his, uh, his biplane. And, and sometimes he would, you know, it was one of those water raft biplanes, but sometimes he would land in a field, in a farmer's field. And one of the shots was, uh, he was like sleeping underneath his plane. And then the farmer's boy, the, the little farmer's kid would go and wake him up and would give him coffee. And then he would be on his way and he would work in Toronto and Tirana. He worked some corporate job and he found an immense escape in, in the Canadian wilderness because Canada unlike America, like a little bit in America, but unlike America, is very regionally centered in terms of its population. Like, I think some staggering number, like almost approaching 80 or 90% of Canadians actually live in the five biggest cities, right? Or the four biggest cities, you know, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, uh, Calgary, I think Edmonton, and I'm, I'm missing one. But I know, like, especially Tirana... And, and Montreal. And so Canada still has a lot of vast untouched wilderness that, that has been explored by the various settlers who have come here, the various European peoples that, you know, in the early days before all of the, uh, you know, all of the mishaps that I won't go into for obvious reasons on YouTube between Europeans and, and the indigenous peoples, there was a lot of cooperation, especially with the Quebecois. Like Champlain made deals with the Laurentian indigenous groups. Um, the Iroquois here and the British. Joe Brandt. You know, um, my, the university I went to was named after Sir Isaac Brock. So, you know, I, there's a lot of, I think, there, there's a lot of romanticism and there's a lot of you know, like you know, a lot of people in America, they have this as well. That there is a an awareness of the vast wilderness and the frontier of Canada. And I, I really take umbrage to this whole trying to, like this, like lib revisionism towards people, you know, towards artists like the Group of Seven. Because I feel like there is a deep root that goes into you know, the, the the first encounters with the Canadian wilderness by the European. And it, it really just says something. And I think, you know, hearing that story from my father was very integral to me. Because it gave me an awareness of not just artwork, not just the landscape, but the the stories, the, the mythopoetics of the Canadian wilderness. And I think, as much as I, especially of the last three years, and I, by the way, I see Libs trying to do this like weird ghost dance when it comes to uh, the Cividian era. They're, they're, they're wearing the masks again, and it's another wave is coming. And especially after the last three years in Canada, I've been incredibly critical of what I call Canada as the model of 
global airport world. But I think that now um, I'm starting to think of things in my age. And I'm starting to think about my own artwork and what I can do. And I will release a video on this uh, critique of the, the exhibition that this uh, French writer, who I may have on the show, by the way, I'm very open to this. He's written about me before. Um, it's funny because a, a very uh, special, important person in my life right now, uh, you know, she actually took more offense than I did. <laughs> it was very cute. But I, I look at like my artwork and I realize that I've been trying to enunciate a lot of these concepts. But I've really sort of strayed from my capacity as a landscape painter. Because I am indebted by artists like A.Y. Jackson, like Emily Carr, like Lauren Harris, like Tom Thompson. Even contemporary landscape artists in Canada. There's a great plein air tradition that goes unnoticed. And so I think that there must be a way, because things are incredibly dark and incredibly grim, you know, there, there must be a way to see past the sort of blackpilling nature of the contemporary political and cultural situation in Canada. And, and there, there must be a way of a positive sense of what it means to be a Canadian. And I think that, you know, there's something that, there's something Matthew, my good friend Matthew Gustav told me, told me this years ago. And it's something that when someone is significant in your life and they tell you something, it really does drive home. It really does make you think of your purpose in this world. Because the reality is, is that I am Canadian, whether I want to admit it or not. Like, I could, what am I going to do? Am I going to, like, go down some, like, weirdo, like, you know, which I have for a while, I'm not going to lie. There's some, like, you know, weirdo intellectualized version of, like, 2010s right-wing discourse where it's, like, you LARP as a European. Now, I think that Europe should be connected to North America in a better way. And maybe I will address this in the paywalled version of the politics of it. But, you know, especially I, uh, people wanted me to cover the Haas versus uh, Patrick Casey debate. But, you know, the reality is, is that I'm Canadian, whether I want to admit it or not. This place that I live in, this region that I live in, the Niagara region, it's the only place that I know. Now, I, I have a great affinity and I have a great love of America and American people and American culture. But I realized that you know, even though Canadians, I've said this before, we basically are kind of like Americans now. I, I forget who said this to me in reply. I think it may have been, who was it? It may have, may have been Stan Haynes or it may have been someone else. I, I, I forgive, I, I, please forgive me if I forget, but someone said to me in the replies that Canadians are loyalists to the core, whether it was being loyalists to the British Empire or loyalists to the American Empire. Because, you know, I, I had this, I, I said this take again. I think it was under um, my good friend and Julius. Uh, it was under one of his tweets where I said that, you know, Canadians, like Canadian liberals are basically the most bluest of blue state Democrats. But, you know, the point being is that, like, I am Canadian. This Niagara region is all that I know. 
This country is my country. Now, people would say that it's not really your country because you're a descendant of Ellis Islanders, and that's fine. But I feel that even as, like, a son of an Ellis Islander, like, I have a connection to Italy. I have a connection to Brazil. I consider myself... I'm fully Italian, which is another big part. I'm fully genetically Italian, whether you want to say that, you know, it's Italian exists because there's so many substrates, right? I mean, even me, I know that. On my mother's side, I'm pretty close to the Greek... The, the Calabrian Greek side of Italy. On my father's side, being Central Italian, being from Marche, like I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty genetically close to the original Romans. But the point being is that in terms of my lived experience, in terms of the virtue of my birth, I am Canadian, right? Now, yes, my, fa you know, my father's family's been here for a long time, but I am a son of an Ellis Islander, yes, of course. I don't I probably don't have the same rooted connections that someone who is of the founding stock of both the French and the you know francophone and anglophone Canadian but nevertheless you know you know in terms of the structure of what Canada is I'm not I'm you know bracketing the indigenous experience it, you know it's European of course right so I don't know. I, I think, like, I don't get hang... I, again, I don't get hung up on the sort of, like, uh, you know, like, identitarian type of stuff. But I do think that it's important. Because I think this, like, multicultural, like, post-Pierre Trudeau version of Canada is, is, you know, an affront in a lot of ways. To say that, like, well, you know, there's two founding versions of Canada, Anglophone and Francophone. Therefore, Canada doesn't mean anything. Anyone could be Canadian. That just, you know, signs of some papers and comes here, right? Like, yeah, okay, yes, I'm an Alice Islander, but my family, they, they had to, like, work to have the right of being in this country, you know? So I, I, I have a different experience, of course. I, I, I don't have even the same experience of what that term Canadian means like my uncle does, my Uncle Mark, but, or, or a lot of my friends... You know, like like Settlers Lament, you know, like uh, other other Canadians of this sphere of this thing of ours. You know, I I don't have that same thing, but at the same time, I feel an immense obligation to defend a picture of Canada that isn't the global airport. And the only conclusion, so Matthew the Stout, he said this to me years ago. He said, "Geo, he was you're a Canadian." You, you don't want to admit, but you're Canadian. And you should try to create a positive image of what a potential awareness of what being Canadian could be. You know, he said this to me. He's like, I'm British. I know what I am. Right? That's what he said. I have this huge artistic tradition behind me. But he goes, you know, you have this tradition as well. And so maybe you should focus on the positive elements of what a potential could be of a Canadian identity that is unique from America and even unique from the British. Even though both civilizations, both empires, have a lasting influence and imprint upon what being Canadian is. And you can't ignore those black pills. But you should try to create something else. You should try to create... And I, I truly believe that the work of art can do this. 
you know, you should try to create what a, a vision of what Canadian is, you know, warts and all. And of course, you know, uh, part of that is also wrestling with the indigenous question of what that means, because you really, you know, you can't be open and honest about anything now, especially in the, the way it is now. They're, they're literally trying to criminalize the, the, the mass graves thing. They're trying, Trudeau is trying to sort of silence any dissent um, on the equivalent of another event of the 20th century, if you know what I mean. That you're denialist or whatever. So, you know, a lot of the, the, the sort of more nuanced history of what happened, you know, say, I'm not saying that there wasn't abuses of an incredibly evil manner towards the indigenous people, of course. I, I'm not saying even that the residential schools, the way that they were set up to sort of like break those family relations between indigenous children and their parents. I mean, of course, you know, e even if it started off as the equivalent of those of that era's like liberal humanism, because that's what it was. They thought that they were bringing these people into a civilized world. And that was sort of like the liberalism of that day. Right. But we view it as like this evil reactionary conservatism, blah, blah, blah. But no, that wasn't the case, right? I mean, yes, it could have been done better. A lot of a lot of these reservations to this day, you know, existed in squalor. There could have been a different way than to try and erase their own culture and their language. So I'm not saying that evil was not committed, of course. And I know some right wingers are going to take offense to this, right? It's it's objective. But I do feel that this like purposeful distortion, and yes, I don't agree with him ideologically. But there, there are journalists like Terry Glavin who like really stuck their neck out to say that no, this is bad history. You you know, you can't bring awareness to injustices that were perpetuated on the indigenous people by creating some like cartoonishly evil mid twentieth century reckoning of it. Because we all know when you use that word mass grave, we all know what we look at, what the average normie thinks of, right? So it's very, it's tragic. It's tragic that you can't talk about history. You can't talk about it with any nuance. And now they're going to criminalize it. So, hey, if that means that, you know, I will face some human rights commission case, then so be it. Like, again, I have nothing but love and respect for the indigenous people as well. You know what I mean? Like, uh, this is a very sticky and complicated issue. Because I know that a lot of the right wing, they have this impulse to be like, you know, who cares about them? Because they're part of the ideological coalition of people that want to destroy us and our values. But I do think that, you know, you need nuance in these scenarios. You don't have to be like a normie liberal fence-sitter. But I'm saying that... You have to recognize that, yes, a great injustice was done, was committed. That even if the, the goal was to, you know, the goal was to make a better life for these people, it could have been done better. And there were abusers, of course. And uh, I, I think that this whole thing should be reexamined. But we can't do this. And this is the great crime of, of current year liberalism. This is the great tragedy is that you can't even have an appreciation of the cultural other 
because immediately history is erased or replaced by another narrative and you can't have a proper dialogue with the other. It's like I know this funny meme that people have that I believe even Orkran himself denied. Like he, he said is just cool. Of course, like it's incredibly... He's like, it's incredible how tolerant the racist community is as long as you're being racist. You know that one. You know that stupid meme, right? But it, it's kind of like... In, it's like something that Mark Stein... And yes, I know Mark Stein's a neocon. And his thesis on the Islamization of, of Europe was inaccurate. Because he didn't see a greater... A sort of greater blackpilling situation. Which is that not only will you get the migrant crisis. Not only will you get the demographic uh, shifting of Europe. But you'll also get like the liberalization of, of Muslims in, in Europe. And you get this like weird, you know, like European academics teaching them how to hate these people, these host peoples. You get the worst of both worlds. So Mark Stein, of course, he's, you know, a neocon and he's got a particular affinity for like the neocon programming when it comes to American foreign policy of the Bush era. But, you know, he was right. He said that... Uh, it, it, he, one thing he said was right, I should say. Let me qualify. One thing he said that was correct, where he said that, you know, the British, for all of the bad things that they've done, you have to realize that, like, the only way you could truly... Like, they, they did great... There were great pains to analyze the various peoples that they conquered. Rightfully or wrongfully. And he said that the only way you could truly examine a foreign people and a foreign culture from your own is if you know in you know that you have a sense of cultural not maybe not cultural superiority but you have a sense of like what your own history and what your own awareness of you as a people what you are you can't really appreciate the other without difference you can't really appreciate the other without an awareness of where you stand and what your history is and what your people are. And so liberal multiculturalism, he said, starts off from a faulty assumption that you must have this like Rawlsian veil of ignorance where you ignore all of this stuff. And instead you try to LARP this like universal, baseless, secular, egalitarian humanism that just reduces every single culture into nothing but like these trinkets and these baubles and these like very shallow signifiers. And you don't really get at the heart of difference of what these different peoples are. And it's very tragic in a way. And this is the problem with the, what I called in my essay in ending bigly a, the many fates of Trudeau. I believe it was the only uh, nonfiction essay in it. Yeah, I called it the Canada model. And I talked about the truckers. And I, I said something similar. I said the Canadian model is essentially like the global airport ideology. And, and in a way, that robs us of our significance. So let's talk about other things. Let's go to a music break. Uh, Philip Daniel has a, a new offering for us. So I just wanted to say this. I just wanted to talk about wh what it means to be a Canadian and uh, I wanted to talk about the, the potentialities that are there and that you must resist global airport ideology in your heart. And also another thing before I forget, 
Big shout out to my good friend, Alex Kashuda. She just had her second child. And also another good friend, a good artist friend of mine, Christina, had her first child. So God bless to both of them. They're, they're amazing mothers. And uh, we, we love to see it, folks. We love to see it. And of course, I'm very indebted to Alex Kashuda as a good friend who is really... Uh, I, there's so many opportunities that I've been given because I appeared on her show twice. So uh, let's go to break. Hit it, Philip Daniel. many things to cover a lot of news has been uh <laughs> i know i did the bath thing yes um a lot of news to cover a lot of people want me to talk about different things they wanted me to talk about the uh richard conti no sorry richard hanania thing uh do we get too cocky hananiacs running wild on you no but in all seriousness I, I have i don't have that many takes on that i mean well we'll get to that there's also this article that uh, I have to read that follows up with a group of seven attempted cancellation. But there's a number of things I've come across on the TL. I think some of them I'll have to paywall. One of them is my by my good, good friend, Nando the Noticing. But uh, there is this take. Well, before I get to this take that people were dunking on about communism versus fascism, um, let me let me read to you what my good friend Martin posted from uh, this writer, um, Vavanargos, Vavanarhos, uh, and I want you to guess who this describes. I, I think you quite like this one, or rather certain people that this uh, passage describes. So the passage is entitled Fulcas or False Eccentricity. All that is false displeases and wounds us in whatever shapes it's present in itself. Since men compliant by preference and intention embrace without selection the ideas of everybody who would believe the others exist, who pride themselves in not thinking like anyone else thinks and not borrowing their opinions from anyone. Never speak of eloquence to Forcas, or if one wishes to please him, do not mention Cicero. Because, you know, everybody likes Cicero. For he will immediately eulogize Abdullah, Abu Taleb, or Mahmet, and assure you that nothing equals to the sublimity of the Arabs. If some old comedian, the author of which is no longer is long since forgotten, is revived on the stage, is that piece which he admires and prefer, preferences before all, or sorry, prefers before all. He finds the plot in, ingenious, and the poetry and the situations. Uh, inimitable. Of course, you know, he misses why people forgot about that poet to begin with. But if war is the topic, you must not speak to him of Turian or the great Conde. He places far above them certain ancient generals with whom only their names and one or two disputed battles are known. In fact, on every occasion, 
if you mention two great men, he sure as he will always choose at least uh, the least favorite and famous for his hero. In all respects, one of the most mediocre of men, he stupidly thinks to make himself original by means of affication, and he aims at nothing more. He avoids agreeing with any... And this is where it gets really interesting. You This probably... You could tell, like, um, certainly a, a, a tag team uh, that, you know, maybe... Well, we'll see. Uh, he avoids agreeing with anybody and disdains to speak to the point provided he speaks differently from the rest. He studies in puerile fashion to be incoherent in his talk, like a man who only thinks and speaks by sudden inspirations and f flashes. Tell him serious, or sorry, tell him seriously a serious thing, he will reply by a jest. Speak to him of frivolous things, he will begin a serious discourse, and he'll put on his serious hat when you're trying to joke with him. Uh, sir, uh, sorry, well, them. He disdains to contradict, but he continually interrupts and often, instead of answering you, turns away his eyes like a man in profound thought. He has an absent mind far above air, far away always, and disdainful expression of continence. Um, countenance, sorry. His part is to appear dominated by his imagination and to pay no heed to the intelligence and intellects of others. He wishes to make you understand that nothing you can say has any interest for him. Shut up, loser. Oh, sorry, did I give that away? Um, any interest for him because he is too far above your ideals. His conversation, his manners, his love, even his silence, warn you that you can say nothing that is new to a man who thinks and feels as he does. He is a feeble-minded man who disbelieves and disbelieving the merit can advance him, thinks to impress humanity by his affections, and to be taken for an original merely by throwing aside reason. Wow, does that not describe a lot of different people? I mean, does it describe, well, you know, I people who know, you guess the two people that the, this passage is subtweeting, but... You know, it's funny that uh, I, I think I, I rather disdain people like that. Now, listen, here's the difference between me, because I'm so special and caring and gregarious. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I like to, th I mean, you can never really judge yourself. This is a little life, this is life advice section of the content-minded solo variety mega show, okay? You can never really judge your own self 100%. You can only let others, or rather... You can only rely on the warranted, reasonable judgment of others. That isn't malicious. But may include constructive criticism. And it's very hard to gauge for most people. When people are giving you solid advice. Or rather people, not just advice, but people are giving you a warranted and pretty accurate picture of yourself, right? There are people that I've noticed in my life who have, in a lot of ways, seen right through me and, and are a pretty good judge of my character, both positive aspects, attributes, and negative ones. And, and I think it's very difficult because a lot of people don't have that because of all of these social pretensions. A lot of people don't have someone that you could rely on that can see right through you. My father is one of them in my life, by the way. I can't get anything past him. 
he'll say something that I ignore at the time because, you know, even if you've had an overwhelmingly positive childhood and experience with your father, which a lot of people haven't, there still is an impulse inside every child, especially every young man, to be like, I don't want to be like my father. I want to be different. Even if your father is a positive influence in your life. But there's something in there. There's something, some kind of like peevish transgression that people have. So there are things that my father has said to me that I've always said, you know, that's not true. But then lo and behold, later on in life, you get older and you realize that, yes, it's probably true about yourself. So you always have to realize that there are people out there that will judge you harshly for whatever reason. And there's people out there that probably will have a good judge of your character that will see right through you, but ultimately have your best intentions in mind by saying that, you know, you were good at this, you need to improve at that, whatever. What I cannot stand is people like this. People that either can never take themselves um, with any air of levity whatsoever, but also will belittle you, when you and belittle things that you take seriously. Now, again, this is very Aristotelian. It's all prudence, right? Um, it's not to say that... Um, it's not to say that everything that people take seriously, you in turn should take seriously. It's not to say that every belief that people have is worthy of respect, of course. But I think that, in a sense, when someone is very passionate about their beliefs, about their religion, about what they hold dearly, within reason, you can critique it in such a way as to be serious. But people that laugh in your face when you're trying to bear your soul... I detest those people. When people also, when you are joking, but then you make it like serious. I mean, when no offense has been given, you just do it because like a lot, like a lot of people, I like to call it the too cool for school attitude. Like, you know, every university undergrad program has this where it's like a guy that just like, he's, you know, so self-involved and serious. He's like, I've read more than you, blah, blah, blah. But yet that, intellectual curiosity that they allegedly have never really amounts to anything because they're still like lugabeds and slackers and they justify their form of slackerism by saying that you know it's all a game man people like that it's like you shouldn't take them seriously because more of a healthy attitude would be that i realize that these institutions are decayed and and in a way a joke but there's still as serious things in life and there's still as things you can get out of them but, you know, apart from outright destruction of these institutions, uh, you still have to operate within certain parameters. People like that, they, they have a very self-destructive ego. And they project it onto others. And also this drive towards um, what I was going to say before. Like, the difference is, like, yes, I have a, a cited obscure things, of course. But I never hold, like, lack of knowledge over people's heads. Or at least I try not to. I, I cite a lot of obscure, like even this film, like, sorry, in this podcast, I, I cite obscure songs and films because I want people to understand. But people that have this like very nasty, very like rude tendency of like just like putting things out there and saying that you're an idiot because you don't believe or you don't um, know about this obscure source of knowledge that they themselves have probably only come across and, and haven't internalized then it's like, I hate those people. I detest them. Because this is like fake eccentricity, just like this passage is said.
And you know why you can suss people out like this and you could totally disregard them? I'll tell you why. Because if someone, say you have like a nerdy type of personality or you have like, let's call it a neurodivergent personality and you're hyper fixated and obsessed with this more obscure body of knowledge or this more obscure thing. Now a person who's genuine in that will want to express their, themselves and will want to make you understand why they love this in a healthy way. If someone is say, let's say they don't exactly like thick, oh, thick is a good one. Let's say they don't exactly like uh, Ficta. They like Herder. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm sub, I'm subtweeting. Let's say that, uh, you know, someone, um, they don't read Agamben. They read Jean-Luc Nancy, right? This is in philosophy. Not a lot of people have read Jean-Luc Nancy. Well, a lot of people have, actually, as opposed, but not compared to Giorgio Agamben. Now, let's say that, you know, you're in a talk with somebody such as myself, who is an Agamben head. But me, I don't really care that much for Jean-Luc Nancy. It's like, if you're, uh, you know, if you're passionate about a thinker or about a source of knowledge or about an activity, then ideally you would want to make other people aware of why. And you would want to make other people aware in a calm manner, maybe in like a little bit of a neurodivergent manner, why it's important, right? But people that like have this attitude, they don't do that. They shove it in your face and they blame you. And because they think that knowledge or lack thereof is some kind of like moral failing, right? And this is the problem. Uh, but that one line, let me read it to you again, because I found this quite impactful. This line that says, um, he, so yeah, he's, he tell him something serious. He will reply by a jest, speak to him of frivolous things. He will begin a serious discourse. Um, it's always the pretense of thought and it's always the pretense of, uh, you know, the pretense of something else. It's not really like there. They're not there. They're not fully present. When you engage with people on an intellectual level, like the sued poster will never rise to that occasion. They'll always pretend that they're either like better than you or they're not worthy of it. Notice how uh, certain particular groups, like, uh, you know, they never produce anything. It's always just criticism. Because if they were to produce something, their pretensions would evaporate. Because it's like if you bill yourself as the best, then I hate to say it, but in this life, someone's always going to come along better than you. But if you have the sort of sincerity, because any type of creation has a element of sincerity and has an element of wanting and wishing to express something in the world or to put it out there for whatever reason that maybe it's just by virtue of an inner necessity then there is an element of vulnerability in that you are vulnerable in the front of the capacity of your own creation it is vulnerability to put something out there and, and maybe putting something out there will like make you a bit humble in life, right? Maybe putting something out there will make you think twice about criticizing others. You know what I mean? An artist, as an artist, I have this as well. You know? Going around just trashing things and not creating. 
uh, there's something fundamentally distorted there. There's something wrong, right? You can't just suit post your way into saying that, well, you know, if I put something out there, then it's not worth it. And, you know, uh, it's too good for you. It's just too good for you. Like, like that's such a... That, that really is a, a sort of mind of iniquity right there. Right? That, that is really... Um, that's, that's really like, uh, you know, hanging outside of the gates of heaven type of attitude. And in a way, if you think that something is so good, why would you not want to share? Why would you not want, even though only a select few people might get it or might find it appealing, whatever that is, intellectual work, work of art, uh, create, you name it, whatever creation you can think of. Why would you not want to share it's a deep insecurity, in other words. And it's a deep lack of sincerity. And it's living in a cloud. A, cl a fake one, by the way. It's like, there's something fundamentally wrong there. But anyways, I've, I've gone too, much, uh, too long. Because as I've said, and I've said this in a YouTube short, I live by one fundamental maxim in life. If you can create more things when you've slipped your mortal coil, if you've created more things than have destroyed things, then I guess it's the best you could hope for. Because there's people in this world that relish in the ability to destroy more things when they leave than create them. So I hope that really, uh, I hope that really makes things clear. But let's move on to this other horrendous take before I get to something, you know, more meaningful. So this is a tweet that people were dunking on by some like Paul Graham guy, what's his name? I don't know. Like I don't. Is it Paul Graham? What is this? Uh, yeah, Paul Graham. He's responding to this guy. I don't know why a hundred people that I uh, mutuals with uh, follow this guy. Maybe he's got. I don't know. He's some kind of Substacker. Maybe his work is good, but. Uh, this take. And it, I, I guess you could say, like, this is becoming a talking point now. The reason people apologize for a fascistic phase in their youth, but not a communist phase, is that communism is a stronger and more fearsome ideology. Body count is ten times higher. Wow, that's a really good uh, moral equivalency. That's like taking, like, people accuse, you know, the Bappists of vulgar Nietzscheanism or will to power. That really is sort of like vulgar, grug brain, will to power interpretation that misses the whole point of even what Nietzsche was getting at. When walking along a narrow pathway, the smaller person almost inevitably yields to a larger one. And, and like people were rightly dunking on this. This is by some this Rob Henderson guy. Um, people were dunking on this because like it misses the point entirely. But also like being proud of like the amount of viciousness and human misery that your ideology has produced. Wow, that's really that kind of defeats your point, no? But it certainly defeats Paul Graham's point that says, A teenage communist is often driven by a naive benevolence. Oh, oh wow. A teenage fascist is probably driven by something scarier. Um, that's really crazy. That's really, um, yeah, that's that's incredible, right? It, it violates that point because he he's replying to someone that says the amount of sadism and viciousness and human misery that communism has caused is a source of its strength and celebration. But also, this this idea... People were pointing this out. 
this idea that communism or having a communist phase, and it's very ironic how um, this tablet magazine piece, which is quite good, although the guy that's being interviewed, this gallows guy, you know, he has got this hang up about Putin and whatever, but it was quite good about the early years of Obama and how people just totally ignore his, his past because even he was a radical and with these radical ideas that he had to kayfabe later on. The point being is that, you know, people were saying that this view, this culturally instantiated view that is propagated by Hollywood and the media and academia, that, you know, churlish youth, you know, communist bright-eyed ideals and these young kids, they just want to help and save the world. And they're, they're passive, wholesome chungus, and they love people, and that's why they become communists. And communism was a failed ideology because they just cared too much about the world and their ideas translated into the redacting fields and into, you know, the gulags and into famine and untold human misery uh, because, you know, of this, like, this, like, furthering of the Enlightenment ideal that went too far and that couldn't sustain itself. And they, oh, gosh golly, they just had the best intentions in the world. Like, that is such a ridiculous... Hollywoodist narrative view of things, right? That was like literally a media image by communists. And by the way, Joseph McCarthy probably didn't go too far enough. You know why Joseph McCarthy didn't go too far enough? Because they stopped him. They stopped him because he was getting at people that were, you know, just like, you know, uh, you know, low IQ actors. He was actually, you know, maybe challenging certain people at the top. But anyways, that's another, uh, you know, for all you can say, for all the criticisms I have of Moldbug, he was pretty much uh, right about the, the, the you know, what did he call it, the brown scare. Um, anyways, the point being is that that is such a ridiculous view of history. And such a, it's such a simplification. It's not where I rely when it comes to an outright lie, when it comes to the actual motivations of your average communist and your average leftoid nowadays that are driven by pure resentment and hatred and, and uh, a revenge fantasy, right? I mean, the motivations of the average leftist is not this. I mean, the average ideologue. It's not like this, This uh, you know, they, they don't care about, like, oh, I'm going to save the world. They want to punch the chuds. And we all know, you know, we all know the the thing, even motivational forces I probably can't say on YouTube that, that are behind this. But the point being is that it, you know, I really love how, you know, at least people were dunking on these takes. But it is like this vulgar will to power of like saying that, you know, oh, fascist lo fascism lost because blah, blah, blah. The real reason why people apologize for and what they mean by a fascist past, they mean like even people nowadays who have just moderately consumed frog level content, not even like genuine whatever. Right. The reason people are apologetic and people regret it is because you're neglecting the actual systems of like knowledge and, and the actual systems of generating consensus reality for most people. Not out, you know, these institutions have a particular form of power knowledge that deem right-wing ideas as verboten and deem them as a moral defect, right? This is why it's, it's all power knowledge and you can't really expect these people that create these takes to know that. Or maybe they do know that, but they have to cynically ignore that. Which in that case is worse, actually. Because now they're lying to you. 
so I don't know. I, I I'm glad that people were dunking on this take because it's just it's besides the point. You know, are, are, are people in the far right motivated by petty resentment and, and a will to, like, express their uh, impotent level of, like, not being heard or not having any authority? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. But what is worse? What is worse? Revenge fantasy when you come from an ascendant position of power and your ideas are at least partially normalized or treated with kid gloves in the very least? Or a position of total power powerlessness? And being motivated by that. A lot of people that are on the far right or even on the moderate right, a lot of their motivations come in a world that has been taken from them, in a world that they perceive as fundamentally distorted, in a world that, you know, really butchers a lot of foundational values that have been proven over the aeons to be equated with human flourishing, right? And this goes back to a take that people like Kafefi Anon and even Orrin McIntyre and others have said repeatedly. That the current leftists can never have a life world. They can never imagine a life world for their ideological counterparts. They can never imagine a psychology for their ideological counterparts on the political right. They imagine them as a cancer or an infection or a virus or a mass. They can never really care or even begin to know the motivations of the right wing. And even these accounts, these activist accounts of a certain variety that pretend that they really are experts on far-right extremism, do they really know about the inner workings and psychology and motivations of people on the quote-unquote far-right? No, they don't. If you've ever read their works, it's all just... its Well, really, it's all just political speak, of course. But further than that, it's all just a sort of copy-and-pasted um, half half garbled justification for their own ideology. Because ultimately, every quote-unquote extremism expert that harasses and doxes people, uh, really, it all just comes back to filtering their own ideological lens, which is really just a filter for their own inner psychology as well. And their own, like, let's call it psychic physiognomy. Because ultimately, ideology, I think, comes down to a level of psychic physiognomy. It all comes back to that, to them, to the leftist. They, they really can never view in any honest sense the inner motivations and psychology of people on the political right, let alone MAGA boomer conservatives. They have some theories of like, you know, it's really just class and material conditions issues, or it's really just like they hate women they hate minorities. They hate otherness. It's all xenophobia that's caused by a irrational fear of the other. That's what they believe, right? This is like psychology 101. This is unironically the Sam Harris take on things. Sam Harris, the lowest of the low of midwit, quote-unquote, public intellectuals. And let's call them thinkfluencers. Because as even Foucault saw this back in the 70s, there really is no public intellectual anymore. Because they're all just servants of power and or they're all servants of their own ego. So Sam Harris had this take about like, what was he saying about, you know, actually the real scary problem is on the far right. And, and uh, you know, it's <laughs> he had this other stupid quote. It's like, we need to focus on the maggots again, the, the Trump people, uh, you know, not to focus on because this is what they do. The James Lindsay's of the world. Uh, I think was it Prude that had this take or was it someone else? Uh, forgive me if I don't remember. 
about the James Lindsays and the Sam Harrises of the world, the terminal centrist liberals, that as soon as they see a side gaining any traction, they'll revert back to like making the argument of the previous group that they've been going after. And, and the, they're always eternal hobblers of discourse. They will always clip your wings. They will always hobble your feet. They will always become an enervating force to any side that wants to ascend. And it just so happens that, you know, the equation that these lefties always make, which really drives me insane, is they believe that, um, don't you know that, you know, uh, liberals will always side with fascism. They'll always side with the political right. Like, if you have been alive for any amount of time in the 20th and 21st century, if you know anything about history, then you would know that that's false. That actually liberals will always side against the political right. Especially in the last, I would say, 20 to 15 years. And, and, and centrist liberals like James Lindsay, they will always stab the right wing in the back. And anyone that thought that Sam Harris was trying to like, you know, oh, he's Sam Harris, like the intellectual dork web, they call out the woke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They call out the woke, right? Really good. I'm sure they do. It's all just ephemera. And then, listen, I'm sorry for political coal posting, but let's get to some other coal because really these things make me angry and, and I know they're not as intellectually stimulating as they may be. But let's get to some other coal. Let me finish off the group of seven uh, hit pieces. This is an article that I was made aware of by my good friend Bart the Red. And that Skeptical Waves, shout out to Skeptical Waves. Go to his YouTube channel. He uh, has a, a number of very good article readings and source material readings. Uh, Skeptical Waves actually provided this. I believe this is from 2021 or 22. 2022, so last year, last year, okay. So this is in the uh, CBC, of course it is, I mean, come on. Let's liberate Canada. <laughs> I can't, I can't do it, I can't, this is incredible. Let's liberate the Canadian landscape from the group of seven and their nationalist myth-making. Uh, based alert, ba well, I wish, I wish, right? I wish that, you know, more people actually viewed the group of seven as nationalist myth-making instead of ordinary landscape work that people find as a pleasantry. This is from Matteo Similarano. Um, Apparently he's, what is he? He says he's Cree. Cree slash settler writer in Jersey. Oh, so he's, uh, I guess there's some, you know, there's some European in there. Oh, that's, I love how they put Settler. That's very cute. Um, by racing indigenous perspectives, Tom Thompson and the group of seven painted a new nation into being. Wow, that's like a bad thing, right? Well, of course. Of course, with the, uh, from the ethno-narcissist, it's a bad thing. So that's great. Uh, content warning. It has a content warning for indigenous readers. Colonial violence is discussed in this essay. Uh, taking me a long time to reconcile the group of seven, their place in Canada's mythology. What mythology? Do we even have one? Apparently we don't, right? Apparently we're the first uh, post-national country. We don't have any foundational ideas. They're beautiful, varied in their landscapes. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so he's got to like throw this out just for like whatever. Um, group of seven nationalist stories surrounding us like the prints of their work that hang in Canada's households, schools, galleries, 
We're told to see they're painting such a chapter in nation national story as fundamentally Canadian. Well, they are. But the history of indigenous people and their lands, the sacred sovereign relationship we have with this land. Oh, see, see, you can only have metaphysics. You only have belief. You only have religiosity in Canada if you are indigenous. That's it. Or maybe if you're like some kind of other uh, BIPOC, you know, um, you know how this works, right? You know how this works, right? You know, only certain people can have any religious or mystical sentiment and others can't. And it's delineated by uh, political lines. So just wait, we were meant to see in the group of seven's paintings do not represent uh, localized landscapes infused with history from pre-contact to the colonial present. Indeed, they're reducible images of standardized Canada where Jack Pine is standing for red leaf on a flag. Um, wow, that's that's incredibly... A colonial gaze, of course. Yes. But you know what I would say then to this? And this is where my respect for a lot of these uh, indigenous activists evaporates. I would say, yeah, you know what? Yes, yes. It is the the aspect of Faustian man to conquer the landscape through depiction. And to tame the wilderness. I wonder. I wonder. Uh, but of course this is alien. Because of course the indigenous people in Canada never conquered anything. Right? They never, they never, uh, you know, they never built uh, any. They were really just like noble, like uh, Rousseau's noble savages, right? So you see the problem with this analysis. Okay, you see the problem with this. You either have to deny agency to indigenous people. And say that they basically were kind of like Rousseauian noble savages that lived so close to the land. They, they didn't build advanced, um, well, for relatively, you know, advanced tribal formations that culminated into miniature villages, then cities. Uh, they didn't have animal husbandry or earlier forms of it. They didn't conquer their neighbors, like the Iroquois Confederacy here. Uh, they didn't, you know, so either you have to deny all that, or you say that, yes, it's true, but, you know, there's still, like, you get what I'm saying here? In, a, in an odd way, I know this is, sounds like the, the DR3 argument, like the, the Dems, the Libs are the real racists, but in a way, it's it's true. It's factually a flaw within their argument. So you're saying that, you know, you have to deny, you basically have to say that uh, they they were always going to be just, like, very primitive agrarian people that didn't, you know, that they were going to get just washed over by the evil colonialist settlers but no i mean when really the story of you know indigenous people and the you know the british and the french are much more complicated and much more nuanced than this picture right so in a way it's like you to, to create this victim narrative you have to like rob them of the actual history you have to rob your own in this case in this guy's case you have to like rob the <laughs> he has to rob his own people of any sort of nuance or any sort of uh you know, they have to basically revert to a Disneyland depiction of them. Now, so what's more insulting, right? Anyways, um, largest opinion of the Canadian Warners, they were particularly influenced by the sketching trips they went on Algonquin Park, led by Thompson, uh, who resided there. Um, so let's get, let's skip ahead. Uh, when something is erased, a blank sketchbook is ready for its artist. Nationalism needs the artist brushman to conquer the imaginary landscape as it needs the pioneer to do so with the real landscape. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you, yes. It's true, it's true, right? But of course, that's the thing. You can't say that. You can't say that there's any sort of nationalist myth-making myth in Canada, because that's verboten. 
right? Oh, but of, but of course, nationalism to indigenous people. That's that's correct, though. That's that's the real nationalism. See how this works? I know I'm going back to like an older, like right wing, you know, 2010s uh, pre-Trump argument of like nationalism for everyone. Everyone gets their own shire nationalism. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when you play this game, then it, it just leads to a pile of incoherency. And I don't like these people that like, I mean, I even question their own connection to their own ancestral roots, because really this sounds like you're, you're creating a facsimile, uh, a very easy, easily propped up politicized image of what indigenous people were like in Canada. That's just, I don't know. That's just me though. Um, and he mentions John Locke mixing labor with nature. You create private property. Oh, of course. So this is like a Marxist uh, thing, right? So yeah, no, you Europeans conquering the the wild nature of the North America, the frontier. That's evil. That's bad. You can't have that. Um, First Nations were largely out of sight and silenced. But see, here's the fundamental flaw. Before I read any further, this is a fundamental flaw. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Yes. Indigenous artists were silenced. Whatever. But then nowadays there is more awareness of Indigenous artists than ever. So why do you have to like? Like, why do you have to knock down the group of seven to make a point, right? Why can't you do your own? It's like when conservatives say, why can't they create their own intellectual property characters? Why do they have to subvert, I don't know, Spider-Man or whatever? Who cares? It's kind of like, you know how they say cruelty is the point? It's kind of like subversion is the point. That's the point, really. Like, like there are plenty of indigenous landscape artists, Right, that and, and so a lot of them are promoted. A lot of them are quite good, and a lot of them are promoted within the National Gallery in Canada. But that's not the point, right? That's not the point. It's to basically destroy European artists, the Group of Seven, and to destroy their legacy, and to say that Canada never had any nationalist sentiment. We're always just the rag of a certain bodily fluid of empires, and if we're not that, we're evil, terrible settlers. And the real nationalists were the indigenous people, and that's it. And oh, by the way, uh, the real nationalists are indigenous people, but also uh, Canada is a land of infinite immigration where our diversity is our strength, and the fact that we have no identity is our real identity. So see, what what do you want then? What do you want? You know? Don't you think that that's sort of like terminal multicultural global airport view of canada don't you think that also implies the indigenous people can't have their own claim to this land as well but that's the point this is the point okay is that you can point out these ideological inconsistencies all day but it doesn't matter does it it doesn't matter right it doesn't matter that you can say that there's plenty of great indigenous landscape artists. There's some terrible indigenous, like, I mean, I'm not a fan of Machman, right? But, you know, I mean, he doesn't paint, he doesn't paint half this stuff. But you could say conceptually, he is a, a contemporary figuration painter that does have narrative, that does have, you know, a sense of, like, content and a, a sense of his past, however, like, liberal and distorted it is. But still, okay, whatever, right? Give, give the devil his due. Uh, I, I think, well, actually, I, I shouldn't bash Mockman too hard. He did do that painting of Trudeau uh, that I can't describe on YouTube. It's absolutely hilarious. But and it, I mean, Justin Trudeau. Uh, but the point being is that, like, it's not the point that you point out that they have indigenous artists and you could celebrate them and now they can be brought within the canon of this 
very complex tapestry of Canada's history and national sentiments. No, it can't be that. You have to destroy in order to place, a to place in some cases, a lesser than product to be elevated, right? Now, that does a disservice to Indigenous people. That does a disservice, of course, to the Anglophone and Francophone descended Canadians. Because if you have this global airport view of Canada, then, well, I guess that means that Indigenous nationalism has to go as well. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. It's kind of like gladio nationalism in that one country in Eastern Europe that we can't stop uh, fretting over. <laughs> Especially now that they're losing. <laughs> um, it's kind of like, in, in an odd form, it's like cultural gladio nationalism where they have their little, you know, Disneyland version of indigenous nationalism just because they can go after, you know, other, you know, a select demographic of people in Canada. But at the end of the day, they're just as, like, thrown to the winds of postmodern multicultural non-identity as everybody else, right? Because, and that's the thing. That's, and people don't point this out, is that they're just as much a victim as any... Francophone or Anglophone in Canada of this like post Pierre Trudeau version of post nationalism in Canada, right? Remember, we're always an empire. Either we're, I'm sorry, we're always loyalists to an empire. Either we're serving, uh, you know, we're serving the British or we're serving American liberalism and we're doing it better than America. That's the whole point that Pierre Trudeau, the stepfather, set out. Sorry I'm ranting, but this is very close to my heart. Uh, the group of seven. Then he talks about the cra uh, Crown Land initiates continued. However, the Canada, like the group's artwork, Crown Lands, uh, Crown Land remains for private interests and ever increasing profit. Um, Lauren Harris. So yes, yeah, it's a crime that Lauren Harris um is the most expensive Canadian artwork ever sold, and it's the Vancouver Island uh one, I believe. In her essay, Land is Pedagogy, uh, Nashabak intelligence and re um nishnabuk intelligence and rebellious transformation sorry if i'm butchering the phrasing michi sagik nishabug writer um how do i say that nishnabeg writer lena bets um betsamosake simpson uh, equates aki uh anishaban mawishi from land with liberation. She writes, Aki is also liberation and freedom. My freedom to establish, maintain relationships of deep reciprocity within a pristine homeland that my ancestors ha uh, handed down to me. Um, Aki is encompassed by freedom, freedom that is protected by sovereignty and actualized by self-determination. Yeah, okay, I agree with this, but why Why then can we not have some sort of, uh, you know, intercultural dialogue between uh, the group of seven that was influenced by European painting styles and you know, and, and indigenous art form, oh, you can't have that, right? But all this thing about my ancestors' land, well, I'm sorry, uh, according to global airport liberal ideology, uh, there is no such thing as your land or my land. We are nothing but uh, the global airport. So that that's the thing. Um, Simpson is pointing to a freedom as about human dignity taken by settler nationalism, but my nationalism is clean, though, through a violent... Nationalist violence. Canada endeavored to leave indigeneity in the past tense through residential schools. Um, 
you know, indigenous agents and bands and culture, spiritual practices. Again, like I've said, those things were not good, right? But of course, it's all revenge fantasy all the way down. That's what it is. When someone is erased to blame, so I read that by European tradition, we're happily to produce these nationalized paintings. So, so you're saying that um, you can't have the nationalism, I can have it. Oh, but also the ideology of current year Global Airport Canada says that there's no such thing as nationalism. So it doesn't make any sense, right? But again, it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Revenge fantasies are the point. Erasure of European art styles are the point. So yeah, that's what it, so there you go. I'm asking you carefully to consider the historical truths Would you see the paintings of Group of Seven. What do you see, Canada? What does that mean? It's a landscape, but who is the owner? Who is that ownership supposed? Is there an owner? There you go, there you go. There's no such thing as Canada. No such thing. You're right, there you go. No such thing as Canada. Um, the artwork helps us understand history through what it represents and how and why it's reproduced. The Group of Seven's painting and their reproductions play a crucial role in forming Canada's national mythology. Now the Group of Seven must be liberated from the prison of Canada nationalism. True freedom and sovereignty of land might depend on it. So what does that mean, liberating from Canada nationalism? Did Canada ever have nationalism? Was Canada not a loyalist nation through and through? Was Canada not in the service of another greater power in the region or across the pond? What Canadian nationalism do you speak of? And the one little attempt that you have of the artwork delivering some sense of Canadian nationalism to its people, the group of seven, now that must be erased. That's, see, cruelty is the point here. Erasure is the point. You're saying on one hand, I want to express my, I'm not going, I'm just, like, I'm a, I'm a broken record right now. <sighs> like, the group of seven might be liberated from the prison. So what do you want? You want, I know what you want. I know what you want. You want to burn them. You want to burn canvases. You want to erase them. You want to decenter them from their importance in Canadian history. And what do you want to put in its place? I mean, yeah, maybe these, you know, these libs, they have like some, you know, they'll point to some indigenous artist doing some kind of landscape work and they'll say maybe that person should be venerated. But we all know the point is that they leave it with nothing. It's art in the age of nothingness. Nothingness without end. So that's the whole point. They don't, like, they don't even care about any indigenous artists that they're going to replace the group of seven with. They don't care if they'll manufacture some kind of, like, you know, in this reservation in Manitoba, there was a rival indigenous group of seven, the group of ten or whatever, and they were doing landscape paintings. It's like, that's just, that's just an aside to the current ideology. Like, they don't care about that. The point is destruction. The point is erasure. Right? You could say you could manufacture any art tradition in Canada, and there are a lot of them. You don't even have to manufacture them. You could say at this time, at the same time as the Group of Seven were having their meetings in Toronto, in Algonquin Park, that there was rival indigenous artists that just weren't heard because of racism and settler nationalist colonialism, whatever you want to call it. But it's like, that's an aside. They don't really care about that. It's more of the act of revenge and destruction that really is more of the point, right? Because you're saying that uh, nowhere in this article is there any sense of replacing it with something. It's like, oh, we have to liberate them from their nationalist myth-making. We have to return the group of seven to nothing but placid landscape work that is impressionistic. 
And that's it. Is that what you're saying? Then what's the point? Oh, you just have to look at them as paintings. That's it. You know, it has no history, it has no comportment within any sentiment and any sort of yearning or inkling that Canadians have that they are unique people with a unique sense of history and a unique nationality. Nothing. It just, it has to be erased. Sorry. Um, so anyways, I thank Skeptical Waves and I thank Bart the Red, my good friends, for making me aware of this article. I believe I read it maybe a while ago, but... Oh, God, let's move on to something that's less depressing. Well, actually, probably not, but something that I'm maybe less blackpilled on, less, less worked up over. Let's move on to Richard Hanania. Hanania? Yeah, have we, have we gone too far? Hananiacs? Hanania, Hanania mania running wild on you? Uh, <laughs> oh, man, let's... Woo! Okay, let's move on. So, yeah, apparently, uh, it's incredible... Richard Hanani is going to survive his cancellation, his associations with Richard Spencer. And here's the thing. I am no fan of Richard Hanania. Okay. I am no fan. I don't agree with his, uh, you know, his anti-Christianity, his uh, hatred of the Chuds, um, even like his analysis of like, uh, like his sort of HBD stuff. I don't know. It's like too, you know, I don't know. I'm not... I'm not that, I, I guess you could say, reductionistic. But, um, I mean, yeah, it's it's very funny how there's a lot of speculation going on as to how he managed to survive this. It's really interesting. Because he, he does say a lot of, like, quote-unquote, cancelable opinions in public. But I think it's, like, the way he says it, his sort of, like, you know... His group is not, you know, that he hangs out with the sort of like substacker class. He's not like, he doesn't have the mark of uh, your average like telegram fed poster, you know. Uh, but also I think his mix of like his hatred of the, you know, white chuds has probably been in some ways a protective measure. Like again, I, I fundamentally disagree with him and in, in, in Anatoly Carlin with their thing about like, well, you know, if a lot of like high class, high status, rich people, high IQ people, if they're like libs and we have to be like libs and that's there, you know, it's for a reason and we worship high IQ, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's, it's besides the point, really. It's besides the point. But anyways, uh, I said this publicly as much as I do not like Richard Hanania as for a variety of reasons, of course, during the past three years, that certain medical uh, state of exception that happened you know, um, I don't know. There's something about him, like his whole thing against, uh, you know, Down syndrome children. You know, there's just something fun. I mean, his fundamental hatred of Christianity. Uh, yeah, of course, I'm not a Hananiac, okay? But I, I've i said this publicly. I've said that, you know, of course, the gutless and, and you know, the cowardice, the gutlessness... The absolute worm-like behavior of people that are, you know, that doxed him and, like, all those activist accounts of a certain variety, you know which one. I mean, they're of course, they're all, like, butthurt that uh, they haven't managed to dox his uh, number one, uh, you know, apparently there's some higher-class uh, backer of his. And, and maybe he's getting protection in some sense, you know, he interacts with uh, 
the feel on Dryasin Network, you know. But anyways, they haven't managed to get at his uh, number one donut, uh, benefactor, if you will. And uh, thank God. But, you know, I like the whole doxing thing and... But, you know, it is it is sort of, as much as I don't agree or, you know, rather as much as I don't like Richard Anya, it is in a sense a white pill. I think Keith Woods was talking about this. It is a white pill that him and others have managed to somewhat survive their cancellation and their sort of brush, even like Elon Musk openly talking about the uh, farmer situation in South Africa. Like a lot of it's, uh, you know, a lot of it's got some points of hope there it's got some white pills and I, I and i stand against what hanani is going through but the fact that it hasn't really i mean he hasn't paid it any mind which means that he's not bitter about it which means that they probably haven't hurt him economically and he certainly is never going to get banned from twitter and he's certainly never going to get banned from substack i mean his substack apparently is quite large so it's like yeah i mean i i think it's you know it is a white pill in the sense that he's managed to survive. But I really don't have a lot of enumerated thoughts about this. So before we get to the review of the center of the world, let's go to some questions. Someone asked me about psychogeometry and Carl Jung and architecture. Jung had not too many things to say about architecture, but of course his own home in Bollingen that he designed and imbued with different symbols. Some of them have some predictatory power. I talk about one where he depicted a Russian bear. So apart from being an artist, he was a great uh, architect as well, or rather a stone carver. And, you know, he predicted some kind of strife after the Soviet Union, but either through his active imagination, dreams or whatnot. But, you know, psychogeometry is a very fascinating topic because place and location and dwelling are such fundamental uh, elements of certainly my research. You know, I mean... I'm indebted to the Heidegger essay, you know, the Heidegger book, Building, Thinking, Dwelling. And, of course, the placelessness of the modern world is a fundamental element of my book I'm writing, A Neoliberal Catch. But, you know, I've even had this where place is imbued with a significance. And memory, you know, the very Proustian about virtual time in search of lost time, which actually is about... Quite, quite a lot about the, the the movie I'm going to review in the paywalled version of this, To the Left of the Father. Um, very fascinating film. I highly recommend you all subscribe to either Patreon or Substack. One of the greatest films I've ever seen. Anyways. Um, one of the greatest biblical allegories I've ever seen in the film. But place and location has such a powerful effect on us that within the unconscious even there are a lot of like little things that you don't really detect until you go back to that place of significance and when the world is brought into nothing but sameness where location does not have the like there's no ambiguity there's no sense of permanence to the architecture where there's no sense of uniqueness everything looks essentially the same every consumer outlet or franchise or corporation essentially looks the same aesthetically uh it really marks the soul in a way and i know this is like a vulgar trad point but it's the truth 
even if it doesn't have to be like traditionalist, doesn't have to have supreme ornamentation, uh, the lack of uniqueness, you know, speaking of psychogeometry and speaking of white pills, I'm going to give a shout out to my good friend, Robert Stark. He wrote an amazing uh, article on his Substack, Stark Truth, uh, where he talks about like some hope that you can find in postmodern architecture that do take on a sort of, not a traditionalism, but rather a uniqueness of building that, you know, some people may find silly or stupid or whatever. And there's plenty of silly and stupid architecture that comes out of the new internationalist style. But, you know, he's saying that there's some good examples of this and that it actually does mark the landscape with a uniqueness. And it does actually have a unique aesthetic. And uh, it's a very great article. Please go and uh, subscribe to Start Truth Radio. I mean, he's been around forever. And, of course, buy uh, his follow-up called, uh, what's it called, Vaporfornia? It, it's, it's the second part of his book, A Journey to Vapor Island, which is, like, really a frog classic. Uh, such a great book. One day I will do a full review of it. Of course, I, I keep having... I keep wanting to bring him on the show, but, um, I, I, yeah, I have to read his new book still and I've been busy. So yeah, anyways, psychogeometry is a fascinating topic because I think that so much of what makes places and spaces that we interact with unique is slipped away from us. I think that's why nostalgic content is so big when it comes to millennials now entering a sort of halfway period in life entering their 30s and some t some cases even their early 40s that are in childhoods like this is the whole thing with liminal spaces this is psychogeographical why is it that we have an identification with a place that we may not have seen or we've seen a version of in our own childhoods why is it that they seem oddly familiar but oddly alien why is it that the average, like, you know, Norwood millennial Redditor? And yeah, I mean, I, I am including myself because I love those compilations as well. But why is it that, like, you know, the, the millennial is so terminally caught in nostalgia and how the digital world enables that? I mean, this is a topic of great interest to me and Prudentialist, you know, and Catherine D and, and even Robert Stark. Um, you know, so there's something to it there. Because there is a familiarity in such a vulnerable time in our lives. And then when, of course, one place collapsed in 2001, it was all over. It seems that the gears of world sameness were not accelerated, but had been jumped off by the falling towers. And by the time you get to the 2010s, it's all over. I mean, it doesn't have to be over, but in terms of the uniqueness of public spaces and of corporate brands, I mean, I talk about this in my book. In terms of the psychogeographical content, unless there's a sort of like hyper-specific memory that you have, it's largely over. Um, there are other things that people have asked me about love and so forth, and uh, I might have to paywall some uh, lurid discussions of certain things. But yeah, I've been receiving a lot of different questions. People ask me about different animes to watch. I certainly will get to them. Um, uh, Poppy Coburn on Twitter, a mutual of mine, she asked me about the left calves. So maybe I'll have a little rant about the left calves. Um, 
someone asked me about more Kowloon Walled City content. And of course, to explain the stock photos thing, which I might do. I might do actually a short video on stock photos. No, it's very funny, the left calves. I mean, they're really indicative of, you know, th this thing I said, I said this in Digital Archipelago uh, at the time of... Um, <clears throat> The time of uh, recording this, uh, you've probably already seen it, but I, I basically explain um, what my good friend GSP from the War Report says about like a lot of these foreign elites that um, that basically consign themselves to doing the bidding of the GAE, the Empire, because their crimes will be erased on the ground. Um, they will have a source of legitimacy that transforms parochial sort of strongman despotism in the local level to um, something more, something that, uh, you know, that is essentially akin to managerialism. And this is why they do it. They essentially consent to their own demise or their people's own demise for a reason. And this is the same with churches. I said this. This is the same with churches inside of the empire. Inside of America and Canada and the Anglosphere and so forth. They feel like they're losing social relevance. And therefore they have to sign on to this mutilated version of their own doctrine. To appease the powers that be. And they could be hip and with it. And so forth. Um, now, here's the thing about the left calves, okay? Here's, here's the thing. And so, Poppy, if you're listening to this, this is for you, my friend. Now, this comes from a writer that I don't have any particular love for, but this comes from Ross Douthat. He wrote this article in First Things about, like, the changing shape of Catholicism in America. So he says, Herbert McCabe and Alistair McIntyre, two rather different Marxist Thomists, are inspired by their uh, for the uh, Tradinistas. The Atlantic's Elizabeth Brunig... Liz, uh, Liz Brunig, what you think? You know, Bat posting some bodybuilder and Liz Brunig's replies. Um, weird Catholic Twitter, so-called, has often been their online home. If all of this makes the tra uh, Tradinistas sound marginal relative to the other tendencies I'm describing, well, in certain ways they are. Because their economic vision often has the current Holy Father in its corner, and that it's to counter something. Even if they lack the direct political influence of the populace or the ambitions of the integralists, ugh, God, both of them miss the point. And, and of course, left calves entirely miss the point, in my opinion. Tradinismo nevertheless has a clear political theory. The conditions for Christian renewal depend on breaking capitalism's chains, and thus to ally with secular socialists, maybe to seek the good of the church in the long run, notwithstanding the gulf between figures like Bernie Sanders <laughs> and church teaching. <laughs> on just about every non-economic issue. Oh my God. And the extent that they're participating in some small way in the larger revival of socialist thought, which in turn participates... <laughs> oh my God, which in turn participates in some way in the Biden's presidency's <laughs> ambitions. Uh, ambitious economic agenda. These left calves can, cl <laughs> can claim at least a modicum of remote influence over a second Catholic president. Whoa! Is he really a Catholic? No, he is not, okay? He is not. Faith is not important to him. No matter what people say, I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry, 
as a Catholic, I shouldn't be doubting another Catholic's faith. But I, I, I'm, I can kind of guess, I, I kind of know in my heart that Joe Biden does not care about Catholicism, okay? All these categories, again, are unstable and shifting. One can easily subdu uh, subdivide them further, and it's possible to move from one camp to another or simply straddle them. One can be an integralist tradnista for whom socialism is the political economy. Oh, trad, trad values and socialist economics? Hmm, I wonder. Uh, a Benedictine drawn to populism because it promotes political protections for the local and experimental. Or an integralist who turns tradnista out of distaste for Donald Trump. <laughs> Adrian Vermeule. Um, I can testify, um, I can identify writers who have made ver versions of these moves. Um, meanwhile, allowing for a few sympathetic Republican politicians in the orbit of the populists, these tendencies belong for now to the intelligentsia and the intelligentsia alone. They are all especially distant as much Catholic punditry from the American Catholic uh, Church's uh, burgeoning Hispanic population and disaffected white working class. Yes, the populist aspiration to speak for the downscale voters who support Trump and Tradnista sympathy of Bernie Sanders, who shared by many Latino Democrats. Ooh. Yeah, Latino Democrats. Oh, they're the future of Catholicism in America. Really good. Um, but most of these people have these debates are somewhat overeducated. Oh, of course. And they are no self-consciously post-liberal cadre among the working class yet. Mm, post-liberal. Wow. Um, similar with the church, they're integralist to Tradnista or Benedictine priest on Twitter. But those labels would leave most bishops baffled. The leaders of the American Catholic of American Catholicism still belong clearly to the old liberal and conservative factions established in the seventies and eighties, and most Catholic institutions likewise. So, anyways, the left calves. Okay, here's what they are. They are the dying remnants of like the Bernie could win, uh, weird Twitter people. They are terminal millennials. They are really they're really just radlibs at the end of the day. They're just as radlibbed as any DSA voter. They, they have this smug air about them. They usually come from, you know, any sort of, like, off-brand Catholic university or some of the main ones, you know. Like, some of them, like, I don't know, they'll come from Steubenville or wherever. And it's just, like, uh, they have this, like, pretension about them because they take the sort of... The, the seeds of, you know, socialist... I mean, that label socialist, first of all, doesn't have any meaning nowadays, but let's, for argument's sake... They take the seeds of distributist Catholic social policy in terms of economics and they run with it. And they truly believe in their heart of hearts that they have a place on the table of the left. That by destroying capitalism, which in, I have criticisms of capitalism, capitalism in its you know current manifestation has of course helped to dissolve the family. But they truly believe that they can somehow create a cudgel or a place or like a little wholesome chunk of shire for themselves within the political left. People like Liz Brunig and other delusional people like Mecha Bernard. And I'm sorry, I, I know I can't, I shouldn't hate on a fellow fat man, but it seems that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I've had a thing about other fats in, adjacent to our sphere. I mean... Between me, Mecha, Campot, uh, who else is a fat guy? Um, you know, I don't know. It's just something about it. I guess I, there could only be one. There could only be one. Anyways, uh, Mecha Bernard had this take the other day where he was like standing General Milley going after the Chuds on that one event that happened on the 6th of, you know, what month. And it's like, 
these people are evil at the end of the day. They're evil. They're, I'm sorry. There's no other word around it, okay? Because they have, they have seeded any sort of proper church social teaching for power. They think that they can adopt a slightly edgier version of like liberal Democrat politics when it comes to economics. But the thing is, the, the tragic thing about the left caths is that they're like these terminal ironoid millennials. They're kind of like the Chapo, the Chapotists in the irony left. And, and they've been burned by the chuds and the right wing. And I remember that one piece in the New York Lies that, that talked about the left cast. And I think it was Mecha himself, that, or it was someone else, that I think it was actually Mecha with his like very arrogant tone um, talking endlessly about like the evil right wingers and the chuds and how they don't understand and like they don't, you know, they vote against their own interests. That's always like this terminal, like this lib argument they have that comes from that book, The Problem with Kansas, that, like, everyone in political science 101 had to read. Like, they vote for, they vote against my interests. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sure, yes, okay. So not wanting, not wanting, like, terminally destructive social policies. And here's the thing, yes, I agree, the Republican Party, in terms of economics, does hate the white working class and other working class people. And I agree with that, okay? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that voting in favor of social interests are much more symbolic and powerful for a variety of reasons. And they, the fact that they still deploy this argument, well, first of all, the, the left caste are essentially just the tradition of liberation theology, but for, like, terminally ironic millennials. It's always, like, Marx first, Christ second. Um, social justice in this world and Christ second. That's what it is. Okay, um, I, I don't have people. They had this weird obsession with Liz Brunig. I never saw it. I never saw anything in her to tell you the truth, um, because these people you have to realize it's sort of like the compact writers. Uh, not all of them, not all of them. Um, there are a lot of good compact writers, but I'm talking about people like Edmund Aponte or whoever, like these people like that for a time because of Trump. The, they flirted with the right wing, the E-right in particular. They'll sell you out at a moment's notice. They don't care. And the left cast proved this, okay? People like Liz Brunig, they will sell you out no matter what. Um, for all of her bromides about being pro-life, uh, they, they ultimately believe in the same socially destructive, civilizationally decaying policies as anyone else. There was that one where I think it was some addict on the subway and Liz Brunig was with her baby and she said, like, it doesn't matter if this guy's, like, doing, you know, whatever I can't describe on YouTube. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like, that's no big deal, bro. Like, I remember that tweet and it's just, it's, you know, I mean, whatever. It's just, a lot of these are not serious people. Let's put it this way. They like to think they're serious, but they're not, okay? Because if they were serious, they won't realize this. What, the point that I'm trying to make. And this is a point where I probably do have a little bit of sympathy. I know I'm bashing them pretty hardcore, but <sighs> Edmund Aponte, but uh, uh, what's his name? Edward Aponte. No, I mean, listen, I shouldn't back, bash the con. There's people that I know that I respect that I'm friends with that write for compact. Okay. I'm just saying like compact is an easy punching bag for like the post left flirtation with the right wing. Um, there's many great people I admire and respect people like Schollenberger and Catherine D and Nina Power and, you know, and even uh, DC Miller and so forth. Like, 
you know, of course. But there's other people that, like, I guess, when people think of Compact, they think of Aponte or they think of, like, Sorbomari or whoever. So, whatever. Um, the point being is that this is where I kind of am a bit sympathetic to the left cast in the sense that they are politically homeless. Totally. Okay? They're totally politically homeless. The same way that Radfems are. So, the left will never accept them. The left will never accept them. The left is totally atheistic. They have some version for indigenous people, for BIPOCs, for migrants. They have some version of, like, trinket, like, like tourist trinket, Disneyland spirituality. But it's never made to influence any social policy, any political power. The current left abandoned their new ageism in favor of hardcore atheistic materialism during the 2000s, during the New Atheist and John Stewart days. You know, you know how there's evidence of this? Here is the subreddit that I wanted to show, share to people. This is ex-Catholic. Um, ex-Catholic. Let's, let's find it here. Um, talking about the left calves. Rant about left calves by our ex-Catholic. I don't know how familiar the circle of Catholics, weird Catholic Twitter, Luz Brunig, but they are driving me nuts today. I'm pretty ex ex existentially confused people and almost became Catholic because of these people in the past two years. Now I have no idea what I believe. Well, you believe in your own uh, ability to coom. So anyways, they appear to be cool with uh, LGBT people. They criticize America constantly. Oh, no doubt, right? Even though, you know what's so funny about the left cast criticizing America? is that in a way, they're just a weird form of left Americanism. All of their assumptions are terminally caught within left Americanism. That's it. I mean, at the end of the day, the Catholic Church, in a large part in America, has Protestantized and has to reconcile with its own unique character as opposed to Europe, even European churches. Uh, and it's just that, you know, uh, it's, it's crazy. Okay, it's crazy. Um, and it's... These people, they don't realize that they have the same assumptions as liberal Democrats in America. There's, for much as they criticize America and the empire, maybe some of them might flirt with some kind of, like, left ironist, like, uh, you know, Kurdistan, Rojava Corps, third worldism, you know, uh... I think even there's, I don't know, are there some left casts in the MAGA communist thing? I don't know. Um, as much as they do that, they're still just consigned to it, okay? So it's very funny how they criticize America. Having concern for the poor, marginalized, etc. However, when you press them, they'll end up saying, this, well, just what the church teaches uh, and crap on LGBT con contraception, etc. and stand by it. I got into a huge fight with some of the people over the Catholic bishops in the U.S. trying to stop a law from being passed that would provide funding for... Uh, Sunset hotlines for LGBT youth. Uh, the skirting around of justifications that came up for the bishops doing their... Uh, so this then other people are saying that it's the equivalent of hip youth pastors. Supposed to be president is cool and in the know, but actually still believe in terrible theology. If you get more... Uh, I'm sorry, but like traditionalists are kind of like uh, hip and cool among a lot of Zoomers. I used to freak... This is a deleted comment. I used to frequent weird Catholic Twitter and even had to count for blah, blah, blah. Um, in the case of my friend, it's obvious to me several things he said publicly over the years that his faith is on the wane, is being progressively strained in the light of Catholic uh, Church's obvious absurdity and his own LGBT exuality. Um, 
Yeah, so he's very intellectually honest, uh, but I can think most of others are completely full of it. They either end up bending over backwards to defend up series like the Prohibition IVF and contraception. Uh, still claim are these people stuck in the '90s? Still, are they stuck in the 2000s? It's it seems that like every Reddit Norwood lib, lib like every Reddit Norwood ex Catholic ex Christian lib, they're all just stuck in the early 2000s. They're all just stuck in the Jesus camp memes. That's it. I get the appeal of the aesthetics. Believe me, I absolutely fell in love with the medieval Trinitine Latin aesthetic when I was 15 and stayed. Uh, stayed that way ever since. I love Gothic architecture. Listen to Gregorian chants. Sometimes walk. Well, you know, if you listen to Gregorian chants and you can't feel the spirit, then you have been given over to a reprobate mind. I know Catholics don't like to hear that part of the Old Testament, but it's pretty much the truth. Anyone who's an RX Catholic, anyone who's a, like a hardcore redditor, I'm sorry, you've been given over to a reprobate mind. Okay, the fact that your heart is so hardened from those art, from those beautiful works of art and from the Gregorian chant. I'm sorry, okay? You probably deserve the mental hell that you're living in. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I being a bit a bit edgy here? I'm very sorry. I just get really mad. I don't know. Um, I kind of like cutting loose once in a while because you guys appreciate it. You guys like when I bring that fire. To quote my friend Turkey Tom, bring that fire, right? So, <laughs> oh, but one day I'll interview Turkey Tom. Uh, oh, boy, it's impossible to justify actually believing in and supporting the institution just because of the aesthetic and light of the awful moral track. You don't have morality. Your morality is wedded to a leviathan of evil, okay? Your morality is whatever makes you feel good, okay? You, you live in hell. But anyways, let's go on. Um... Weird left Catholic Twitter and political left Catholic Twitter used to uh, piss me off so much. Uh, queer people and women are fighting for the rights to equal marriage and reproductive rights because of most of the last decade in Ireland. Oh, yes, yes. The libs in Ireland crying their eyes out in, of tears of joy because they get to uh, achieve the Malachian sacrifice. Um, I can personally recall having quite different times trying to reconcile my concern for people and my concern for religion. So of your religion is a good faith medium for human interactions. Yeah, that's all you care about. You don't care about the Holy Spirit, okay? You care about, like, it as a social institution. Go and join... What's the, what's the preferred leftoid term nowadays that comes from academia? A third space? Go and join a third space. Go and join uh, a group of some kind. Go and join, I don't know, like, something else, okay? Because if you're not in it for the spirituality, then you should get out, okay? That's my opinion. Uh, but whatever. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm being rude to you. But it's kind of like, you know what, the young Pope, that one line about the, the doorway should be narrow and it should be small but f furious and full of fire. I mean, that's probably for the best, right? Especially in their trying times. Um, they're wavering. Wavering is less a sign of hypocrisy than a sign of change of heart and progress. Sometimes we can be really insistent that everything be finished already. Oh, yes, yes, I'm sure. The left is known for their, uh, the current political left, is really known for their easygoing approach to having people slowly wade into their ideology. Yes, hmm. It doesn't become a ritual of normie sadism to, uh, you know, destroy people that don't exactly go along with everything at all at once, uh, you know. But anyways, the reason I, I can't read any more of this gibberish... Um, I got to experience a small sample of Catholic youth culture that pervaded by Notre Dame, in which OP describes sound exactly the type of person molded by these mincing uh, F-heads. Um, growing up in the South, I used to see... Oh, yeah, South things... You're a Hicklib, right? Um, Jim, what's... Uh, who cares what your name is? You're irrelevant. You're nobody. Um, I used to 
seem angry, spiteful evangelical Christians running around and flexing their entitlement. Notre Dame was the first time I've met Catholics who were like that. Well, I guess there should be more. Of course, I heard that Notre Dame has a lot of corrupted elements as well. Um, but no, here's the point. My point is that the left Catholics are politically homeless and they will lash out because of it. Because the left will never accept them. The left will never accept any form of true and genuine religiosity that doesn't have attached to it some political identity group. And especially not anything to do with Christianity, especially not to do with Catholicism. So, Catholicism. So, the left cast there, uh, they feel like they're twirling in the wind and they have the superiority complex and... Uh, like the Radfems, they're politically homeless because the political right certainly doesn't like them, but, you know, I mean, they tolerate them. They're not going to, like, go out. Of, I mean, they'll go out of their way to dunk on Radfems, and sometimes they'll go out of their way to dunk on left calves. But it's not as disastrous as having leftoids go after you, of course. Um, so, yeah, that's the problem with the left calves. They are in a very small niche, and they will they're basically going to be tattered to the winds. Any Christian in America that doesn't really realize that by default they're on the political right, I'm sorry, okay? The time for nuance is over. And I'm the most nuanced of nuanced bro there is. The time for nuance around this issue is over. If you are a sincere believing Christian, be it Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, especially in America, Protestant, even if you belong to one of those low church, liberal, churchian, you know, whatever denominations, you have to realize that you, by default, because of the way things are, you are on the political right, okay? There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. Let's take another music break and then let's dive into what was the movie I wanted to cover publicly? Center of the World and Nerds and Romance and Love, and there will be the love equation of between politics and love of this episode so philip dan uh, philip daniel i need a casa placencia uh tobacco break uh philip daniel please hit it back uh i might have to do half the review here half in the paywalled version but two two movies uh that really have interested me that i discovered well one of them i wanted to watch for years and then i finally found or someone was kind enough to upload a translated version onto youtube uh i was going to have to endure some pretty uh, pretty heavy like I said, I was going to have to endure some pretty heavy, awkward moments trying to uh, watch a film with my mother and having her translate 
uh, you know, from Portuguese. But anyways, because like I've said, yeah, my mother's side of the family, are, they're all Italian expats to Brazil. Uh, <laughs> Brazil. So, uh, but this first film, I think, I figure is very pertinent and relevant. Uh, there's something about romance films, you know, like there's something when they're well made, a lot of the indie ones, when they're well made and when they do have some of the ones I, I like, they're kind of boring where people would consider them boring. They're very quiet, character-driven indie films. A lot of Canadian ones. And this one in particular, though, both films, actually, ironically enough, where it came out in 2001. Uh, you know, 2001, I believe, was a significant year for all of us who were still around, apart from, you know, maybe you Zoomers that were born in uh, 2001 or after. But, you know... 2001, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's serendipitous, I guess. I didn't even plan it that way. But I was browsing Tubi. Now, Tubi is really great if you have, I know, like, a, for whatever you feel about Amazon, if you have a Fire Stick, I highly recommend Tubi. I mean, sometimes you can find gem, gemist of gems in a sea of coal, kind of like what old Netflix used to be. You know, you'd find obscure bangers. But Tubi, I was, I was, searching through the through the romance section and one of them caught my eye called at the or not at the center but the center of the world right and it's got um Suscard's kid what's his name Peter Suscard Sarsgard and Molly Parker um where did Molly Parker play she was in intensity walking waking the dead um yeah so she's been around um Oh, yeah, she was in Deadwood. There you go. And, oh, yeah, she was the woman in the road. So, yeah, it was... I, I For some reason, it caught my eye. But I do think that it's a relevant film. And, again, spoiler alerts. But, of course, like, the, you know... I, I don't really believe in spoiler alerts because I believe if it's a good enough film, uh, the experience of watching it is good enough. It's kind of like pro wrestling. You know, well... I have to relate everything to pro wrestling. It's kind of like pro wrestling where if it's good enough match, you'll watch it again and again. Even like in UFC or even like any sport, really. If it's good enough, you'll watch it again. But even if you know in pro wrestling, like chances are like you pretty much are going to figure out who's going to win, especially if it's a major title shot. Uh, then, you know, it's like, yeah. But it's still enjoyable nevertheless. So, yeah. So center of the world, it takes place in like late 90s early 2000s dot-com america and it's about a, a computer nerd who through a quant or through some kind of like post dot-com bubble investment i don't know he's kind of like a sam bankman fried character no nah, not really i mean he's not scamming people but he comes into a lot of money his uh, portfolio just skyrockets but he sort of slowly nihilistically loses interest in actually doing anything because he is obsessed with this uh, for YouTube purposes. Let's call it erotic dancer that he pays 10 grand to, to go and stay with him in a Vegas hotel. I always love hotel pieces. Uh, I tell this story. Maybe some of you can help me out. I remember one time when I was a kid, not a kid kid, but like, you know, I think I was just before high school. I remember watching this strange movie with my mother. Maybe it was a dream, but uh, 
on television on one of these like movie channels. I think it was like one of those Peachtree TV things. And it was about a hotel with these weirdos. It was like this fancy hotel. And uh, this like businessman, this black businessman wanted to redact the chef because the chef was a dealer that gave his son a hot shot. And it was about this older man that was uh, wanted this Asian woman. And it's like a very, very strange, very melancholy, very like, uh, you know, almost like out of place type of surreal film. And I always remember that I can never, you know, periodically it would go on a, a Google search or try to find it. But there's many great hotel orientated films. Uh, you know, there's one in Canada, this indie film called Century Hotel, which is quite good. I, I always like that. I guess be, that's because I've always liked the paintings of, you know, Edward Hopper. Uh, they're liminal spaces, but they have an odd identification because of the fact that you are staying in them and they are a mimicry of domestic life in a way, even if it's just a bedroom. And so center of the world takes place mostly in this hotel room. And I think that it's such a great film because it reveals that like sort of that halcyon moment between the internet taking over our lives completely, but also the first sort of like pioneers of that world, but also this like, uh, you know, the, the way that relationships and love were going to go, the direction they were going to go in the world that we live in now. But before I get into the actual meat and potatoes, I mean, well, before I get into, like, the plot, like, I, I still think this is part of meat and potatoes. The scenery, the music, it's very, like, early 2000s lounge. There is this great, great... A song at the very beginning by the band Laika called Black Cat Bone and it's very loungy almost like a kind of mysterious in a sort of like spy not spy thriller but like sort of a there's a purpose to it especially with the bass line there's like a mission there you know but it's still very incredibly like you know it's got that that vibe to it of the early 2000s lounge music not as like ambient as say more Chiba, not as like trip hoppy as say sneaker pimps, but it's like of that caliber. And I believe the band Laika, the same song was also in a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode. So that's the kind of vibe, the early two thousands like Gen X older millennial type of vibe that I just I, I can't get enough of. I, I really I really am. You know the way they dressed. There's people with you know trip wear. Uh, you know, there's like just the early internet, uh, a guy. So it, it really is good. It really sort of predicts the way things are going. But the ambiance, I highly recommend listening to that song, Black Cat Bone. Uh, the ambiance of it is incredible. Uh, some of the lounge and restaurant scenes remind me a little bit of Exotica because a lot of very good romance films uh, have a sort of fatalism to it or a fundamental divide between the way that things should be and the way they should work and the way that they'll never work out. So this guy is sort of like a computer nerd and he makes a lot of money through the internet and he has to sort of lie to his friends what he's doing. His one, his one friend, I believe he's an actual angel investor in real life. They got, they got a guy from the finance world who does a bit of acting. Um, he's like, you know, you don't care about anything even though you're making more money than God. And then he just, he's obsessed with this uh, erotic dancer, let's call her that. And it's one of those like high class places. 
And so he proposes to give her 10 grand to accompany him to a hotel. They don't have to do anything. But of course they end up doing something. But then like slowly the whole point is that it is revealed that it's basically a game to her and that they struggle. And, and then halfway through, she sort of struggles with trying to quote unquote catch feelings because he's not a bad, good, bad looking guy and he's, you know, sweet in his own way. But then to spoil the end, just to get to it, because there's a lot more meaning to it. Uh, he erupts in a fit of chud rage in a manner I can't describe on YouTube, but not, not the way you think it wasn't that brutal, but uh, you know, with her after they've completed the deed and she just looks off listlessly without any feeling. And she sort of has this uh, feeling of the fact that she is uh, participating in lady of the night behavior. But the reason I think that's a, you know, powerful film is that, you know, at the very end, like to, again, spoiler alert, at the very end, there's an ambiguity to it in the sense that they meet each other in the same restaurant or, or club. And it, it doesn't make clear if they're meeting before their arrangement in Las Vegas in a hotel room. It's one of these fancy, like, two-room thing, you, you know, like, two sweet things, uh, you know, it's very expensive. And then he, like, gives her, like, dysfunctional single mother friend money. And then there's a big, like, spoofia over that, you know, where she feels guilty. And But anyways, it's not clear whether they met before or it's after when they try to attempt to have a real relationship. That is a great, you know, that that is a great ambiguity of it. Um, but Center of the World is, it, it can be somber at times, but it's also the sort of playing up to the facsimile of what is real that you are buying for an experience of reality you are buying for you 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 know as a tech nerd you are buying this experience that for whatever reason you feel that isn't you know isn't going to work out or whatever uh and it's very interesting that way because um it, it predicts a lot of the trends that were going to go forward and I think like a lot of the critics, except for Roger Ebert, ironically enough, didn't get it at the time. They said it was like, yes, it was a very sensual and like, you know, uh, aesthetically driven film. Um, it's but then, you know, uh, this one variety review at the time called it softcore kitsch center emerges as a fairly uh, serious minded drama. Um, so, yes, conceptually ambi uh, ambitious. Limited play prospects for the uh, unrelated artisan release, mixed reviews, and buzzed uh, wet blanketed over its relative non-sensationalism will likely uh, curtail home turf theatricals, uh, theatrical reviews. Um, but, you know, the thing is, though, is a lot of the sort of the way that we view relationships that are internet-based or rather have a sort of uh, element of the, the unsocialization that occurs with the internet and how a lot of sensitive young men try to sort of buy their way into normalcy. That's like chock full of it. So Parker's character uh, strongly limes the cautionary self-determination of a young woman who's in it for the money, yet far from mercenary, amoral, or uncaring. Perhaps Pick's most impressive aspect and successful pitch of the world's oldest profession as a problematic but visible personal choice. No one is exploiting Florence, who is far from the unusual, uh, usual doomed drug-addled or airheaded uh, prostate 
figure seen on screen. Uh, Suskard's, um, oh, Suskard was in Boys Don't Cry. That was, maybe I should review Boys Don't Cry. Because, you, you know, as you know, uh, me and Prude, or rather just me, I force him into it, have, uh, you know, a penchant for reviewing D-Gen cinema, as you know. So contributes even more nuanced work as a man-childish introvert arriving just with the dot-com boom has gone bust. Center's high-tech nouveau riche angle may strike some viewers as already dated, but in the long run will add a credible specificity of time and place. Yes, 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 this review and Variety came out in 2001, and it's it's even more relevant than ever, in my opinion, this film. So, the, the, the mix of luxury, uh, cheap and easy money, along with the struggle against true sentiments... All of that plays out in this film. Sorry, plays out in this film. And I think that's really... It's pressing because I, I think that maybe a lot of the same struggles that people have... Uh, I mean, imagine being... Like, maybe there's, like, this this weird... Like, it's, it's a mix of, like, manosphere woman hatred, but also it's a mix of, like, uh, like total rad femme irreverence to feeling... It's, you know, the that, like, what's that? That whatever podcast, that grift podcast with the OnlyFans models. And, and they have, like, the most airheaded and most, like, you know, like, shocking spectacle that just is, like, catnip for viral memes. It's, like, okay. Very, like, one OnlyFans person that go like, one of these women that goes on this podcast and, and spews a bunch of nonsense... And, and the hosts are barely coherent themselves because they're, like, literal, like, not even 90 IQ. And, and it's, like, for every spectacle that that generates, for every one of them, for every one prawn uh, actress that hardens their heart and has this totally mercenary, uh, ultra-capitalist view of, of life, I, I, I wonder if there still is going to be a tidal wave of regret... And feeling, and, and some of them do, you know, if you listen to interviews with these uh, quote-unquote models or quote-unquote content creators, they say that, you know, they actually kind of do care for the people in their audience, even if they think they're creeps and losers or whatever. They actually do at some base level, because if you're, if you're LARPing as caring for someone, you're giving them a girlfriend experience. On the base level, the unconscious can't tell the difference. There still is a root of sincerity there. And and this film is brilliant because it really does um it 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 does predict and preempt the issues with trying to date, trying to find romance in the internet age where there is parasociality mixed with a distancing uh like there's a, a few scenes like of course center of the world is a allusion to the painting by Mamet of the of the female body part. And it's like, I, I believe Florence, the main character, uh, Molly Parker's character says, you know, like, uh, this is from which all life flows and there is something sacred there. But it's very like, you know, nineties, early two thousands, new age type of stuff. But yet it's framed within this like girl boss feminism type of thing. Like I can be a, like in some ways it also does preempt the era of only fans and other forms of quote unquote X work where they sort of distance themselves from the gritty and disgusting reality of what the vast majority of people in that quote-unquote line of work, oldest profession, actually do, where they try to, like, gutsy it up, like, glitzy it up with, you know, high-class, 
aesthetics or nowadays with OnlyFans, it's basically not quote unquote X work. Now it's uh, it's something different. It's being a content creator. It's it's being a emotional support worker. I've seen some of them describe it that way. And the reality is the the terrible reality is that they probably are some form of a emotional support work, you know. But that's it's, it's disgusting. I'm not endor- endorsing it. I'm saying that it's a tragic. It's a tragic state that we live in. It's sort of like what... There's something... uh, People were piling on him. And and frankly, I think he deserves it. Um, Now, I have friends who are friends with him. I rather... Like, I don't want to get into a huge drama. Because Lord knows that this man loves getting into drama. But there was something that Rolo Tomasi said on, on Twitter recently. Where he said that... Prawn has prevented more uh, relationships from dissolving than anything else. And first of all, that's probably objectively not true. Because we know that in terms of performing as a lover, men have a difficulty with separating uh, even casual use of prawn with, you know, with um, the actual closeness of a, of, a, of a woman. And that it does hamper their ability to I, I hate that term perform but you know it, for clarity's sake perform i think it's you know i, I think intimacy it shouldn't be viewed as a quote-unquote performance it's rather a coming together it's a an expression of what is deeply held it's something there's something there that i think when you boil it down to performance it's something alien but of course because we live in a pronified world uh, everything's viewed as performance it's really is the performance entrepreneurial subject of young chohan but anyways he talks about this in uh, The Agony of Eros. But what Rolo said was kind of interesting because in some ways it's true. Not true in like the sense of that it's a good thing, but true in the sense of it's a tragic state of affairs that like we, we view this thing to blow off steam even though it doesn't really solve our problems of expressing intimacy with someone we supposedly love, but it's like a, a weird palliative that just satiates us till a graceless end. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think that it's one of those things where it's true, but it's not true in the way that they intended it to be. Because he has this whole thing about, like, the trad cons are oppressing men, too. Trad con- yeah, trad cons really have a lot of uh, power in America. But anyways, um, no, but I think, like, what Rollo said is uh, it's it's true, but it's inversely true. It's 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 true in a different way that is unintentional and, and kind of terrifying and tragic. So, in the sense that like the relations between men and women have broke broken down so much that a lot of men view it as a release valve to basically just tolerate the person that they're with. And a lot of what's actually should be discussed and what, you know, should be improved on when it comes to relationships, that sort of goes out the window and it just becomes like a lot of couple, not a lot, like, well, actually a startling amount. I don't want to say everybody, but because like every relationship, you know, you have, times where this happens but a lot of relationships unfortunately are predicated on just basically distracting each other and and feeling a sense of obligation but only like distracting each other just so much as they can tolerate each other that's like a terrible basis of any relationship but it's very common but i think like but then what's worse is it that which is very much like a boomer gen x millennial thing older millennial thing uh but of course a lot of boomers are getting divorced apparently 
or is the opposite, which is the Zoomer slash younger Zennial attitude of like, why get into a relationship to begin with? It's over. It's like almost what's worse, right? You either live a series of humiliations, both men and women. I'm not being gender specific because like both men and women go through this. Or you don't, you live in like semi in seldom or fem seldom where you have no prospects for anything. Like what is worse, right? So this film, Center of the World, it grapples with these questions. An internet nerd trying to buy love and not experiencing that. But there's like, so that, so there's this one line that very clearly is a allusion to the mammoth painting. It, it, did mammoth, mammoth painted that, right? Yes, I'm pretty sure. Oh, sorry, I was wrong. Corbet, sorry, Corbet. Corbet painted the, you know, the famous uh, Le Journal du Monde, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, boy. And, and it, you know, been a subject of censorship. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's so, um, yeah. So anyways, it's very clearly in the allusion um, to the Corbet painting the origins of the world, or in this case, the center of the world. Sorry, I thought it was Mammoth, it was Corbet. Uh, very, you know, please, uh, do not research, do not research. But anyways, so there, there's that line between, like, this, like, you know, people talk about 2010's actuality, right? People talk about this, about not catching feelings in the millennial. This is before that. This is 2001. They were discussing this, how the internet could potentially alienate you from romantic prospects and that you can harden your heart to, to fulfill some kind of fantasy of a payoff when in reality you struggle with such feelings. And, uh, you know, and there's this moment where her best friend in Vegas, uh, talks about her kid that she lost to custody battles, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, there's sort of rumination over it. And, um, and, you know, he displays a lot of humanity and humility and she, you know, starts to see that he's not a bad guy. He's just a nerdy, socially closed introvert. Maybe, maybe a little neurodivergency. And the thing is that the one great dialogue I remember, because I, I, I were in my episode, Marty Phillips, I recall this tale because I had the exact same conversation with my uh, childhood one-itis uh, a few years ago, where she said to him, to Susgard's character, Sarsgard's, you know, don't you feel lonely looking into that screen all day? Don't you just want to go out and, like, live in the real world? And he said, yeah, it, it can, but, like, some certain people are equipped for it. And it is actually is the real world. It actually is, it's becoming the real world. Because money is made on it. Commerce is, is driven from it. Um, communication. The world is through a screen. And you have to re realize that this, like 2001, all these films that I kind of enjoy, they were made around this time of like, you know, the films around the early 2000s or late 90s, films like 8mm, uh, this one, um, you know, Existence, like, they're sort of before an apocalypse. They're right on the cusp. They're right on that border. There's that one line I remember I'll never forget. It comes from Johnny California in 8mm, which is Joaquin Phoenix's character, where he said, you know, they were going to this underground, uh, this underground extreme smut shop looking for, uh, you know, snuff. And 
they they were he, you know, Johnny Johnny in California, the character of Joaquin Phoenix plays of the prawn shop owner who is like actually more intelligent, but he's just doing it to make money uh, in 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 uh, California. Where you know he's reading Capote, he's trying to like. There's this one scene where he's reading Capote, uh, and, and Nick Nicholas Cage's character, the detective, says, "Why are you reading?" Like, uh, he goes, "How do you know I'm reading something else behind this like uh, terribly smutty uh, romance novel?" He goes, "You're not highlighting, sorry, uh, erotic novel." He's like, "You're not highlighting that trash," and so he's like, "Oh, Capote, like you you actually read like you know high class, you, know, you actually read like high IQ things, right?" It was very funny, but. They're going down to the shop. They're trying to find what they're looking for. Of course, they find a fake one because, of course, you know, to find a real one is sort of like, uh, you know, outside of like, uh, like, because that that's always a debate. What is considered snuff? Is it just, you know, expiring on film? Because they like, go to live leaks, you know, the Ukraine war is like unleashed a torrent of this content. Or is it specifically something to do with, uh, you know, the the like extreme illegal versions of very very dark let's call it Dasadian level content right so there's this dialogue he says where you know you realize like we're basically at the end here because when you know we're going to a physical shop that's run by a mexican uh you know a mexican uh you know gang and he goes really like this this is all going to go away because the internet's just taking over the internet's going to take over everything and you're not going to have to like get your your incredibly perverse smut in a physical place anymore so i i felt like that was that was something like even hollywood reflected the changing times of this because you know apocalypse means revealing right it means revealing from one reality to the other all right so the movie ends where they have this Finally, they consummate their relationship and it ends up terribly and he's dejected because at that moment she rejects him. And like, I can't imagine that, by the way, like that just seems totally terrible to to finally have this moment of consummation to then face cold shoulder rejection. But then the end, there's sort of the ambiguity, whether they can make it work or not, or whether it's just a, a, a meeting before and, uh, yeah, so Center of the World is one of those films that really gauged the way the wind was blowing. And it's aesthetically sensuous. The music is incredible. I mean, I'm a sucker for 90s and early 2000s lounge and, and uh, you know, trip-hop and everything like that. So yeah, highly recommend it. Let's go to the paywalled version where I'm going to review To the Left of the Father, one of the greatest uh, Brazilian dramas and uh, I'm going to have to paywall because a lot of it has a lot of hairy topics and I hate censoring myself this way. So see you all on the other side. Patreon, Substack, you name it. Let's. Thank you for listening to the Content Minded Podcast, where every Wednesday there are interesting guests, amazing ideas, solo streams, and discussions on a diverse array of topics from art, philosophy, history, and more. The free version will be available both here on YouTube and as a downloadable link on Anchor and Spotify, as well as on Substack. Each week, the full, uncensored, and spicier version will now be available on both Patreon and Substack, where you will have access to the full archive of both content-minded 
and of giant reviews where I break down interesting texts every week, including other exciting paywalled articles and good content. Thank you all. Please like, share, and subscribe. God bless. Goodbye. Help keep the content renaissance alive. Too sweet.